going on everyone and welcome to another episode of the terror table a horror movie podcast hosted by the saskatchewan podcast network this voice you're hearing right now is mitch and i will be joined shortly by my friends and co-hosts kyle and boozy uh this week we are beginning our journey through the entire nightmare on elm street franchise but we have split the series up into double features except for the final episode in which we're going to tackle new nightmare freddy versus jason and the 2010 remake uh, but to start the series off, we decided to reach out to our friend Scott Hamilton from the Broadway Theatre to discuss the first two entries in the Nightmare franchise. Last time we had Scott on was for our episode 136, in which we gushed over Sam Raimi's classic horror film, The Evil Dead. On that episode, we also learned that Scott had uh, that A Nightmare on Elm Street holds some prime real estate in Scott's horror-loving heart. So on top of that, we just loved having Scott on the show, and we wanted to do it again. Scott's one of those guys that he just understands movies and he has a unique relationship with them. He has a way of describing different elements of films and the effects that they have on himself and us as an audience. And we think he adds a lot to the show and we love having him on. So we figured we'd bring him back for this episode. After recording this episode, I'm confident that we chose the right man for the, to lead the charge for this particular series. If you want to follow Scott, you can do so on Instagram at Scott Kenmode, all one word. Uh, and Scott is spelt with S-K-O-T. And uh, the last words are his band, Ken Mode. You can also follow them. They are fucking amazing. Uh, yeah, we love that guy. Uh, but next week, we'll be diving into Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, as well as Part 4, The Dream Master. And we'll be welcoming another friend to the show to discuss those films. Our friend Seb Terrio of Stereo Design will be joining us all the way from Moncton, New Brunswick. For those of you who don't know, Seb was on, uh, he would have been on around the same time as uh, Scott was, but he is our friend who designed our Terror Table logo. He helped us get all of this started. He's one of the main reasons why we do this podcast in the first place. And uh, those are two movies that uh, hold a huge part in his heart. So it's going to be really exciting to have Seb on the show again. Um, but if you haven't yet, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're active on all those platforms at the Terror Table. You can also send us some long-form messages or any kind of thoughts that you might have to theterrortable at gmail.com. Uh, but for now, let's just lay back. Let's put on our Johnny Depp-style crop tops. Let's turn off our headphones and get sucked into this week's episode of the Terror Table. The Terror Table's back. We're back, baby. This is Mitch. And I, who do I got with me? You got Kyle right next to you. Uh, and I'm Boozy. And we got, we're welcoming back very special guest, Scott Hamilton. Welcome back, Scott. It's been a while. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's been entirely too long. Yeah. So the last time Scott was on was for our Halloween special, which we talked about the Evil Dead. Um, so you can go back and listen to that episode. I, I'm not going to lie. I forgot what number it was, but it's a, it was a great episode. 
And uh, we that was like the first time that we really got to bond with Scott. And we learned that you're a massive horror fan, especially of this era. And Nightmare on Elm Street came up quite a bit as well during that. So we wanted to have you on for this episode where we're going to be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984 and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Uh, yeah. But be- What's that? Yeah, I, I, I seem to recall, actually, I think we really got carried away with Nightmare on Elm Street when uh, uh, when uh, uh, um, 16 Fantastic Film Festival had the uh, uh, the drinking game edition of Nightmare on Elm Street going on and we I think maybe I might have mentioned that like I thought it was great that so many people were seeing the film but that uh, as somebody who took it maybe a little bit too seriously as a piece of art that it wasn't my like preferred way to watch the movie and then I really got my teeth into how seriously I take Nightmare on Elm Street and I think yeah. that might have been where that started. Yep. No, and that's why you're the right man for this job. So we're going to be, we're going to delve all into that. But before we do all that, we're going to talk about what we've been up to and what we've seen, what we've read and all that stuff. But uh, we're going to lead off with Scott. So Scott, you are, you work for the Broadway theater. You're also the, the you're the bass player or guitar. Will you play bass in Ken mode? Mm-hmm. And are you bass in Adeline as well? I can't, I can't remember if you're bass or guitar. Uh, no, uh, I'm guitar in Adeline. Yeah, yeah, guitar guitar vocals in Adeline, bass in Ken Mode, uh, guitar vocals in Grey Light District. Awesome. Yeah, so, like, obviously we are trying to keep the keep the topic off of COVID-19 and all that stuff, but we're, we're talking over Skype for a reason. We're all self-isolated still. Uh, it is May 4th today. Uh, may the 4th be with you all. Um, but, uh, how have you been, how have you been keeping since all this has happened? Have you been uh, watching lots of movies or how have you been, have you been handling all of this? I've been handling it. I think exceptionally well, I've been getting, I've been probably more productive since this happened. Uh, just in my private life, getting more things kind of off my, my, like my, I have a lot of like private uh, clandestine projects that I've always wanted to work on that I just don't have the time for. And I'm, and I'm, I'm taking care of all of that stuff, lots of writing, uh, and, and well, and catching up with with you know art that has nothing to do with me as well. I, I yeah, lots of movies, uh, lots of just uh, lots of concentrated listening. I, I, I the 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 folks. I feel bad for the so the the really social animals who are having a hard time getting through this and not seeing people. I get that. I understand that psychologically. But as somebody who is spends a, a lot of time complaining about not having enough time. Uh, I'm making the most of this, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> That's good. That's good to awesome. hear. And uh, quickly, so for in the eventual, like we're we're obviously our province is doing exceptionally well. Uh, it seems like we're going to be opening up in. I think today is actually the day where places are slowly going to be opening up again, and the world's going to slowly start to try and get back to normal. Um, regarding the Broadway theater, a place that's become a mainstay for the terror table and a place for all of us genre fans in Saskatoon, um, is there, what are some ways that us, uh, like the, the locals of Saskatoon can do to help the Broadway theater get back on their feet once this all kind of clears up? Well, the big thing is, is we're still waiting on a time frame because we're, we fall into the umbrella of being a phase four business. So that means that we are still waiting on any news on when we can open again, which and, and especially due to the nature of what our, our business is, is is based in uh, commune. We're supposed to we bring people together. That's our mandate. That's the point of our business. 
And right now, even for the businesses that are opening, nobody, the, 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 the focus on getting a lot of people together in a room is still, even with businesses opening, those aren't the businesses, that's, that's not their focus. So we're still waiting to see how to most uh, appropriately address that. And I, 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 the thing is, I think that once we are ready to go, you guys are going to be some of the first people that know about it because one of the first screenings we're going to look at uh, taking care of when you know we we know that we're we're greenlit to to start working on on projects again is we have uh we have to we have to rebook a few special screenings that we were supposed to be doing in in conjunction with you guys and we have and that that's some of the stuff we're the most excited about bringing back to the theater so i i mean uh, uh, there's there's a few obvious things that they can do but those pre-exist uh COVID, which are, you just have to come out and support the theater and, 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 uh, you know, support the art that you think is important in your community. That's, and, but that, uh, as a notion, uh, that has really nothing to, like, we're, we're going to need the support, certainly, but that has nothing to, all, all of that, we're, we're, we're still a community owned and operated business. So, uh, we're, we're always in a position where we need that support, even prior to this. And yeah. compared to the other theaters in town, we aren't, we're not part of a we're not part of a larger company or anything like that, and so we are going to absolutely need the help when the time comes. If you are somebody who is flush, we always have a donation button on our website prior to this, uh, because again, we are we're, we're uh, we we have uh, um, uh, community owned status. We're we're you know charity ch technically a charitable. We try to not you know spend too much time pulling on people's heartstrings, and we try to provide programming that's solid enough that we don't have to beg for money that we you know we're bringing things in that people actually want to be there for and everything so uh we we try not to harp on that too much but i mean if if you are of the uh, charitable sort uh you can always hit broadwaytheater.ca and then drop by the donation button for sure awesome sweet well that's all good to hear and uh, i i can speak for all of us that we're excited to get back on track and show the lost boys and fright night and house absolutely. And those are absolutely those are all things that we we're planning on doing excited. Yeah, and those are all things that are possible because of the Broadway theater and you in particular, Scott, you've been helping us with all of this stuff. So we just obviously we really appreciate it. And it's it's so exciting that we have like a hardcore horror fan uh, who happens to work for the Broadway theater and g can make these things happen for us. So it's well, exciting and, for our community. And, and and this is important. This is important to, to drive home is we're uh, I mean, it, it, it I mean, we I, I already used the word community 900 times since this started. And also I'll try to stop doing that. But that is, in essence, what it is that we're doing. Uh, we can't give me too much credit for this. This has to this comes back on everybody who gets involved and makes it happen, because without that sense of community community, there isn't anything to there's no purpose in doing this. We in so for especially local folks who are listening in like uh who maybe don't you know i i, I talk to people who go like well, you know especially with the rep house screenings well i can just watch that at home on dvd or whatever no it's not the same experience it's the communal experience especially with this genre the genre is very special for bringing people together and creating an atmosphere that you cannot replicate in your living room and uh and that's one of the reasons why it's so dear to my heart because that's that's what you know cinema is supposed to be it's a special experience doing it in the in the proper ritual space that's awesome well yeah well just for future references just take the fucking compliment please um <laughs> yeah we're, we're taking it back at this point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I like right, the theater so, being called a ritual space. That kind of gets me yeah, a little like a that. half chub. I like yeah, that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sure that the uh, board doesn't like thinking of it that way. But I, I mean, that's 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 uh, psychologically that's that's where it is in in my in my heart. I, I it's the same as a. Uh, it's the same as setting up your turntable to listen to a record. There's a reason why I think, uh, you know, uh, throwing something on Spotify is not the same as making the decision to engage in a piece of art that you have to activate. And being in a theater is more similar to that uh, artistic, um, you know, uh, invocation uh, to, to my mind. It's, it's making the decision to engage in art. And uh, as will be evident as we move forward, because I know uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is just the Freddy Krueger movie to a lot of people. It is a a work of art to me, and uh, that's how I think of it. So, again, how this whole thing started, because I thought it was a lot of fun that we had 150 people getting loaded watching that movie screaming, and it was a really unique experience. way of seeing the movie but i knew a few people were seeing nightmare on elm street uh at the drunken cinema for the for the first time and to me i was kind of going like i wish you could see this by yourself like for the first time or like yeah it's kind of it's it's a lot it's very similar to uh, well obviously that would be the most extreme case because people were encouraged to get loaded at drunken cinema but i know that boozy and i can both i think i can speak for boozy when we showed halloween uh when people were laughing at halloween it hurt Cause it's yeah. like, don't, yeah, don't you fucking like laugh. Yeah, don't you fucking laugh at Halloween. And like, as much as there might be some goofy shit and a nightmare in Elm street, like you said, it's a piece of art and it's something that, you know, obviously for people like you and I, Scott, it goes back into our blood. Like that's something that we've had in us for a very long time. So you don't like seeing your st- stuff that you love treated that way. But at the same time, uh, and yeah, even, uh, the evil dead, like, I think a lot of people, when we showed the evil dead, I think a lot of people were, a lot of people were going thinking that they're like, oh, we're going to go see a shitty, campy horror movie. And yeah. it's like, that's not what The Evil Dead is. Like, yeah. So don't I, I, treat I, it that I, way. I, I won't make your listeners suffer through another <laughs> one hour tirade <laughs> about how important that movie is. But yeah, like yeah. I, I, I agree 100 percent. I understand. I under I also understand. I understand that uh, that reaction being pulled out of people because it is it's. Uh, I, I mean, it it, it it calls for it. And I think that the makers of the film think that that's an appropriate response to it, too. But uh, you can't stop me from taking it seriously. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Very true. That's a good way. I to feel play. like out of all our showings, Black Christmas was the only one with the like the least laughing. Very true. The I only was scared time, the entire time. The only time people laughed during Black Christmas was when they were uncomfortable because it was creepy. Or the appropriate part. Everyone was oh, yeah. laughing or, about or, the drinking part. Yeah, the drinking. Yeah, that's true. Well, those right, were cool. very those were very funny though. To be yeah, yeah true. That's, that's intentional. It's supposed to happen. Cool. All right. Well, guys, let's get into what we've been up to over the last week. So, uh, oh, I guess Scott, it's been a while since you've been on, so you can feel free to mention anything that you've seen that you want to give a shout out to. Have you have you watched any horror recently that you'd like to give a shout out to, or something you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, yeah, actually, well, I mean, a bunch of things. I've seen a lot of really bad movies, but uh, and and some of them are are. I think it's the ideal time to watch some of those. But um, I like a. Uh, the, the for for instance, I just saw the uh, Demon Witch Child, which is some odd Italian uh, 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 exorcist knockoff that I I thought was so entertaining. It has all the beats from the Exorcist, but with like a very uh, exploitation vibe to it. I don't know how accessible it is. I I, I watched it through. There's a, a streaming service called Tubi. T-U-B-I. Yeah. Oh, you guys, <laughs> shout you guys, out Tubi. Yeah. Have you guys been? Yeah, 
Yeah, they're our yeah, future we, sponsor. Yeah, we talk. I, think, I talk about Tubi, and they la- these guys laugh at me, but there's some good shit on there. Oh, I'm just awesome. convinced that Mitch just works for Tubi. It hasn't told us yet. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, no, there's some great stuff on there, and also it, it's the closest approximation to a video store to my mind because one of the things that I've been doing is I've been trying to recall video store racks and covers that I was always curious about, doing the research, figuring out what those things were, and then going back and seeing if they're on there. I mean, they're never that that type of shit is never on Netflix. I'm never gonna find Acropolis on Netflix. I'm gonna find True. it on Tubi, and I did, and it was horrible. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I got to satiate my my curiosity about it. So, um, Demon Witch Child, I think for anyone who's like at all like a especially especially an Exorcist fan, because you get to go like, oh, they did that. Oh, they did that. They did that, but way worse. Like it's 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 really really fun. Um, uh, I saw Savage Streets with Linda Blair, uh, totally yes. unrelated. I didn't even mean to to do that bridge, but I hadn't seen Savage Streets before, which as far as movies in the kind of like rape revenge canon or whatever, I I I, uh, I hadn't seen that, and uh, I, th- I actually thought it was really good. I I mean, obviously it's a it's a piece of like it's it's pretty trash. It's very trashy. Have you guys seen that one? No, I actually no. I haven't. No. Okay, I kind of did a, a Linda Blair double feature because I did that one in Hell Night. Uh, Hell oh, Night man. had some. Some some good stuff in it, but I, I didn't think it, I I didn't think it was amazing. Savage Streets is real good, real yeah, good. sweet. Is that on Tubi as well? Uh, Savage Streets, yes, yes. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I bought the I have the Scream Factory of Hell Knight, and Hell Knight has it has its moments, but that is one fucking hell of a slog at times. It is, it is. like ghost stuff, and it's great. That looks yeah. awesome. Yeah, agree, but. Uh, but but there's some like the yeah there's some there's some really horrible stuff in there it's you, it's not very inspired you mentioned that savage streets is like a rape revenge story and what one of the things that caught me so off guard about hell knight is how hard how heavily they sexualize linda blair in that movie and it's a weird and I, I get that she's an adult now and she's not always going to be reagan from the exorcist but it was so weird for me to see her in that role they do that a lot to her in the 80s, actually. That yeah. was kind of, I think it was, uh, she She kind of, uh, I, I'm not sure where she set the precedent, but it might have been in Hell Knight. I'm not sure uh, where, where. So much she, cleavage, man. Yeah. So much yeah. cleavage in Hell Knight. Um, and, 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 and Savage Streets, I actually amps that up a little bit. She's actually, what, what it is, is her sister is a, uh, uh, like a, not deaf mute, I guess she's a. Uh, she's she's a um, she has this mute sister. Actually, Linnea Quigley plays her sister. Oh yeah, and oh, um, cool. and and this group of like kind of you know in the eighties whenever they were trying to establish that there's a group of like scary dudes. Usually the way they do it is make them kind of vaguely punk rock, but not really punk rock at all at the same yeah. time. So like all the posers, the bunch Terminator. of posers. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. These guys don't even listen to TSOL. Um, <laughs> but yeah, dri- driving around in like a. Uh, like driving around in a convertible in California and like just like you know destroying stuff and whatever and her her and her like group of cool friends who are actually really cool they're really likable that was one of the things that made Savage Street so good is she has like this group of like also vaguely punk rock friends who are like I don't know they just have like a cool energy about them it's one of those things where it's like a bunch of 30 year olds who are supposed to be high school kids but they're they're fun I love that trope trope of the 80s like I love all the punk tropes of the 80s like in Return of Living Dead which Linnea Quigley's in that as well so yeah yeah yeah, and and uh, yeah, the, it it gets pretty gruey. Like like anything in that of that ilk, it's it's kind of ugly and really uh, not particularly like socially eloquent. But it uh, it eventually it it kind of it peaks with Linda Blair running around and like 
a leather cat suit with a crossbow, like killing a bunch of dudes. So it 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 gets it, uh, that scene. When I put it that way, it sounds really bad. It was actually really good. You though. picked you it. picked my movie for tonight, so thank you. There you go, Savage Streets. Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy your goddamn self. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you guys seen anything? You guys want to go? We we can switch off. And if Scott, you if you've seen more, we can come back to you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but Kyle, Kyle, what have you been up to, buddy? Uh, well. I'm a degenerate, and I haven't been doing anything, because... Boo! <laughs> you've had all this free time, and you've just been spending it on digital online clubs. That is very You've accurate. just been giving all your money to e-girls. I can't <laughs> comment on that um, uh, publicly, uh, but, no, I yeah, honestly, like, Nightmare is what really took up my week, even, like, uh, watching ones for, like, a later episodes and stuff like that. So, oh, cool. You worked a little bit ahead? A little bit, a little yeah. bit. Um, so no, unfortunately, I don't have much to report back on. It's not related to the main feature this week. It's that's a weird fine. thing. It's like, dude, this is going to be the beefiest main fe- main feature in a while. So it's we're true. Fine. That's that's kind of how I justified it as well. Yeah. But it's weird. Like even knowing that I have so much time, like I I've realized that I watched more movies prior to quarantine. <laughs> yeah, you totally did. It's and weird. I can att- yeah, I can attest to that too. Like which is I fucking weird. Like I definitely watched. You know, I would at least go to the theater once a week for sure. That's always something I've always done. I just want to know what you're doing now. I like, don't I even just know. Picture you're just I... like doing synchronous, like you're doing uh, Jesse's dance in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in your room at all times. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm picturing. I've been running a lot, which I've never okay, done in my life perfect. ever. Yes, um, good. I've been Are you playing... being chased? Like, what is the yeah. reason for running? Uh, again, I cannot comment on that at this time. <laughs> um, been playing a lot of uh, Nintendo DS. Um, okay. I don't know, man. Things are upside down around here. It's really... fine. It's fine. We'll come I... back to you. We'll come back to you. <laughs> Boozy, what have you, what have you been up to? Have you seen anything recently? Oh yeah, I got a couple things. Uh, first off, though, I do want to say that Mitch, you and Scott should uh, collaborate on a Tubi list, like a, a yes. Tubi watch hey. list. Hey, yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. A good idea. I like for it so, for some of our free inclined listeners. <laughs> I'll absolutely do that, and I'll Photoshop a nice little picture together. <laughs> That's what I've been um, doing with my free time. <laughs> yeah, you've been going ham on that. Um, first thing I watched, I watched, I believe it's 1997's The Relic, which I love that movie. Um, cool. That's a really good creature feature for anyone who's looking for kind of a monster movie. Um, it's Didn't about somebody a, of note direct that? Uh, I can't remember offhand. I'll, I'll pull it, it up because Peter It has a huge Heim? cast. Peter Heim? Is that who yeah. you said? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I Yeah, because who the hell is in this? It's um, Penelope Ann Miller, uh, Linda Hunt, Tom Sizemore. Yeah, Peter Himes, who he directed Time Cop. and he, Oh, yeah, he directed the 2010, the sequel to 2001 yeah. uh, Space Odyssey. He also never mind, directed, never mind. Yeah, no, no, you're <laughs> right. Not really he, someone he, of note, but He someone. is of note. He directed End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is okay. a movie I talked about recently. Right. Uh, I forgot about this. <laughs> yeah. All right. So The Relic, it, it holds up for you, though? You like it? Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's super competent. And a lot of the special effects are better than some of the things you see now. It's, it's really interesting. They also have a really cool, like, SWAT team scene. That I think a lot of people, even if you don't want to watch the movie, if you just want to get like a scene of what to expect, the, like the SWAT team scene is really good in that movie. Also, oh. it's weird seeing time Tom Sizemore as like a main guy. Do you know what I mean? Because he, he's kind of fallen off so hard. 
Yeah, that happened a long time ago. Yeah, I know. So it is. It's really weird to see him in like a main role, a leading role. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a bummer because he's actually a really good character actor, and he's yeah. he brings. I think because he's such a real life scumbag, he brings a lot of gravitas to to those types of roles. And well, which like I mean, I I haven't seen Relic. I, incidentally, I was confusing it with Mimic. That's why I thought that. Yes, was, uh, that was yeah, Guillermo. yeah. Um, but also uh, a great movie. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I haven't seen this one, so I can't speak to him as a leading role. It's kind of like Michael Madsen in Species too, right? Like, oh, very yes. similar yeah, yeah. thing where, like, they, you don't think of them in those in those roles, and they are, but they're they are guys. Which is not to say Michael Madsen's a scumbag. I don't think he's a documented scumbag, but uh, th- th- those, not yet at least he's an th- off the record scumbag. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They bring so much to those small roles and often overshadow the main roles because of how, like, just the, the shadow they cast and like Tom Sizemore and something like natural born killers like i believe oh, yeah. him like yeah. i believe i believe when he's like strangling a prostitute or whatever like i i think he's enjoying it a little much <laughs> it, it's kind of like like i just saw him in something but that was actually three years ago in twin peaks that was the last <laughs> thing i saw him in. yeah and it's kind of <laughs> ah, like this hey, twin peaks yeah. yes oh, twin peaks sweet. oh hell yes that's nice it. mug um yeah that's what the hell was i just never mind i lost it i lost my thought but relic, cool. Though. I've never heard of the relic. That's cool. Off the oh, that's what I was thinking. Sorry, this is not horror really. Actually, it is horror related because it's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. But I watched Mississippi Burning for the first time. Oh God, that <laughs> yeah. is very so, scary. So, so it's like actually an incredible movie. But much to the point, like you said, Time Sizemore seems like the kind of guy who would be like he's kind of really good at strangling prostitutes. It seems um, a little it's too the, good. Arguably, it's kind of the same thing with Michael Rook. <laughs> Michael Rooker is so good yeah. at being a clan member and like just a dirtbag. And same with Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Like it's like you can't see him as a good guy. Like mm. it's it's so hard to buy him as a good person, even though he is apparently yeah. allegedly. Character actors are where it's happening. They are so often so much better than the people who are being paid nine times as much to do like yeah. a quarter of the work. Yeah, they're the Scotty Pippins of the acting world. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you want me to hop in, Boozy, or do you, sure. want, you got yeah, another go one? Yeah, go ahead. Because I, I, got, I got three things to talk about, or four things, including this. I just want to give a shout-out. Uh, rest in peace to John Lafia. John Lafia, who was the writer. He wrote and directed Man's Best Friend, and he also wrote child the screenplay for Child's Play. And I need to correct myself. I thought that he had written Child's Play 2 as well, but that was Don, Don Mancini wrote Child's Play 2. Uh, John Lafia r- directed it. Uh, but Child's Play 2, I often, I made a post about it, I often credit that to be my true gateway into horror, which might seem really ridiculous for a lot of people, but it just happened to be one of those movies that I saw at the exact perfect time in my life, and it affected me greatly, and I, I do truly still love that movie, and it's my favorite Child's Play movie out of all of them, and that's an unpopular opinion, but I, I adore that movie, and um, I was absolutely crushed, uh, yes, it was on Saturday when I found of his passing and uh, the way that he went, and uh, I just, yeah, want to give a shout out and say that uh, his movies played a profound impact on why you're hearing my voice today. So rest in peace, John Lafia. Going on from that, um, I finally got a chance to catch up with Little Monsters. Have I was going to ask you, Scott, have you seen Little Monsters? Not since I was a little monster myself. No, oh no, sorry, not the Henry, not the, uh, not the Men- Howie Mandel one. Okay. This no. is, yeah, this is from 2019. So oh, this no, one, I haven't. Yeah, so this one's starring Lupita Nyong'o. Tell me it's a remake. 
Yeah, I wish. <laughs> it was funny because when uh, when I recommended it to Courtney, she's like, oh, I've never seen that movie. I'm like, of course you have. And it came out like this year. I've been trying to see it forever. Um, but then, yeah, no, I love that that Howie Mandel movie, Ben Savage movie when I was a kid. Uh, but yeah, this one stars Lupita Nyong'o and uh, Josh Gad. <laughs> so funny enough. Me. So I'm one, in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of my one of my favorite moments is when when we announced that Kyle was a member of the Terror Table, a listener. I can't remember what his tag was or what his uh, online handle was, but he commented on our post. He said, "Is that the guy who sounds like Josh Gad?" And I laughed for about ten minutes because honestly, that's for, fucked up, man. For some reason, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this off by saying that I don't understand the hatred for Josh Gad, but also I haven't seen a lot of the movies that he's in, so that might be why. Um, I don't think he makes movies that are meant for me. So that's why I don't know his, like, I, I, I honestly haven't seen that Ashton Kutcher, Steve Jobs movie. So why the fuck? Like, I don't have a hatred for Josh Gad. I think he'll always just be someone who wishes he could be Jonah Hill, but never will be. Well, that's a, there's so many of those guys. Is that what like, you want to aspire to though? Well, no, well, they, they, they bring, they bring Josh in the token Gad fat guys, the, the token fat, funny guys who they think can be the new Jonah Hill or something. And. I don't know. Uh, anyways, so this one is written and directed by Abe Forsyth, um, and it is a zombie comedy. Now, unfortunately, the spot for greatest zombie comedy of all time has already been filled by Shaun of the Dead, yeah. uh, debatably, unless you want to include uh, Dead Alive in there as well, or Brain Dead. But I still think that Little Monsters was a fucking hilarious zombie comedy. I was really into it. Courtney and I, like, this was the hardest we've laughed all of quarantine. It's now available on Amazon Prime, which I didn't know about because it didn't come up anywhere on the feed. I, w I found out about it from our friend and previous guest of the show, Nicholas Humphreys. He made a tweet about it, and uh, so I went and seeked it out. And yeah, lo and behold, it's on Amazon Prime, nowhere to be found unless you search it. So I think that that is some grade-A horse shit because this is a movie that should be... They got to push these kinds of things. Like this is a this is the type of shit that people will... I don't understand why I'm getting all of these ads for Killer Man starring Liam Hemsworth, uh, this white dude and like on the front of a Did cover. You say and Killer Man? It's called Killer Man. Yeah, like oh exactly. My God. But they so they can promote the shit out of that, but not this. And I don't know that side. Just obviously, there's politics behind the scenes. I'm sure I'm not aware of, but. Um, I thought this movie was hilarious. There's there's a scene in the first 15 minutes with a kid dressed up as Darth Vader, and it won my entire heart. Uh, like within the first 15 minutes, I was entirely sold on this movie. Judging by the letterbox scores of people that I follow, uh, I think others don't feel as strongly as I do about this one. I don't think people have enjoyed it as much as I have. And I've come to the conclusion that that could be because of one of two things. Um, one, people are tired of zombies and the zombies aren't a standout in this film. And I'm, I'm, I can agree with that. I think that the weakest part of this movie is all of the zombies and the zombie element of the movie. Cause it's, it's basically, um, there's, you got, there's down on your luck, deadbeat loser. Who's a musician who hasn't been working. He has his band broke up five years ago and he's busking and he's, He's taking his nephew. He's recently broken up with his girlfriend and he's taking his nephew on a field trip uh, with his class. I know I'm not doing a great job selling this here, but the teacher is Lupita Nyong'o and uh, they go to like a it's like a petting zoo. And there they meet like this um, kids show personality, much kind of like a Barney or a Blue's Clues or something like that. And he's played by Josh Gad. And then a zombie outbreak happens. 
and they are all forced to fend for their lives. So this is kind of that's a, that's like a storyline that's kind of tired. You've seen that kind of stuff happen before. Um, but the so I think the zombie stuff could potentially not work for people. It didn't really work for me. Uh, but the other thing that people might not like is that the humor is very crude and it's not politically correct. There are many times where they say things that might rub people the wrong way. But I think that's the point of the movie. Like all of those lines are coming from someone who's a deadbeat loser and not a very intelligent person. So I think it's on brand for the movie. Uh, but yeah, like I said, for the negatives, I would I would only personally mention that I I didn't really care for the zombie stuff. But outside of that, I think there are multiple times throughout this movie that I was that I was laughing my ass off, like laugh out loud funny. And uh, I think this is a really great movie that, you, that could take your mind off of things that are going on out there. And uh, yeah, <coughs> so I give that one a big thumbs up for myself, and I recommend checking it out on Amazon Prime. So that one's yeah, little monsters, and we can bounce it back to uh, Scott. Yeah, you sure. Got anything else? Actually, I think that uh, this is this is uh, good timing because it, well, maybe good timing, maybe bad timing because I don't know what the status of this movie is right now because I know that it had been announced as uh, coming out on Shutter, and I don't know if they retracted it or what the story was, but I was under the impression that Blood Quantum was supposed to be on Shutter this week. Yeah, it's because uh, I was gonna watch. I think we get Shutter stuff like that a week late. I think Blood Quantum is going to come to Canada next week, but it is available. You can watch it on like video on demand and everything right now in Canada. Okay. You can still get a hold of it. Okay, uh, but well, I'm, I pay for a Shutter account, so I'm waiting for it to hit Shutter. Okay, yeah, as as do I, and I won't. Uh, I, I, I'm going to presume that you guys are going to cover that, so I maybe won't. Get... No, man, talk about. It. I want to hear what you say. I okay, hear well, what you think. Here's the thing. I haven't seen it in a year because I saw it at TIFF last year when I was okay. there at the theater. And uh, I was really, really excited that it was back because for me, you've already touched on a bunch of this. Uh, you, you talked about kind of how uh, tired the general public, especially horror audiences, are of zombies at this point. I know I am. Like, I mean, I thought that the majority of what that genre had, well, I mean, it, it ran out of things to say. And I shouldn't say that the genre has run out of things to say. It seems like no one wants to treat uh, the, you know, the fact that this used to be a, a subset of movies that existed almost solely as a vehicle to make social commentary and, and to have something, you know, to, to really top load it with, with messaging and, 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 uh, to find excuses to, uh, to do more with the form, uh, is entirely lost on everyone who seems to want to make a zombie movie. Now they're all, you know, there, there isn't really a hell of a lot being said. Enter Blood Quantum, man. I have not seen a, a zombie movie that has had so much to say in a uh, Christ. I don't, I, I like within the decade for sure. Because I've, I've seen some other stuff that I've liked. Usually they have to be the exception to the rule. They're not like major outbreak movies. They're not, you know, like they're 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 usually something, you know. Uh, something else. This movie in particular is an outbreak movie that I think will play, especially to Canadian audiences, um, will kind of understand the political ramifications of what it is that is be that is being said. It's uh, Jeff Barnaby uh, wrote and directed it. He did uh, Rhymes for Young Ghouls. Yeah, that movie's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so, cool. okay, did you did you dig the aesthetic of that movie? Absolutely. Like how how cool yeah. was that looking? Like uh, an interesting kind of gritty, right? Like a different sort of gritty. Yes. 
So check this out. This guy's an auteur in the making. I'm saying it right now. We're 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 getting to watch this guy emerge, and Blood Quantum is another chapter in that for sure. Okay. Uh, I think if you would have told me he was moving into making a zombie movie, I would have presumed that it was going to, like so many other zombie movies, not be that exciting. But uh, the uh, the the kind of uh, the the narrative parameters of this have a lot to do uh, with the uh, I guess race relations in Canada. And uh, it, which automatically, if you're from Canada, you know that that me that's 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 a loaded subject that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Um, it's got a little bit of like interesting revisionist history in it, uh, and then on top of all of that, it's also from a like blood and guts standpoint is one of the most effective zombie movies I've seen. It like I said, at least a decade in terms of just being an actual effective like you know, like evisceration, uh, you know, gritty, uh, tactile violence standpoint. It's good. It's so good at that, but it's, it, it is a vehicle for discussion. And I haven't seen that done that effectively. I mean, it, it, it is, it is a proper Romero. I'm trying to think of how you, what's the word Romero we in? <laughs> Romero-esque um, yeah yeah Romero-esque uh uh vehicle for for social discussion via uh, I you know the the this it, it just it, it harkens back to that that level of um respect for the audience that we can have these discussions within the parameters of this subgenre I haven't seen anything like it in so long and from a from a filmmaking standpoint it has a really fantastic look it does a lot of really inventive stuff with zombies and i i don't really want to i don't want to give too much away uh save that it, it kind of immediately dives into uh the relationship between a small town and a nearby reserve that is joined by a bridge and uh all of a sudden uh w this this is a zombie outbreak that only seems to be affecting the white community and not the uh first nations community that yeah, is a start sick i'm that stoked is a, to watch this as a starting yeah. point that's all i'll leave you with it it has the most to say out of uh i think any horror movie i've seen well i shouldn't say that. Uh, that that's going a little far i think that uh just given you know my geography i, I was very moved by it and i thought that it it uh, it uh, and like any other good work of art, it's not answering questions as much as it's posing questions for you to have to take home and have a tough conversation with yourself. Um, and if you're not the intellectual sort, it's still going to be the best zombie movie you've seen in in years. It is so good, you guys. So I'm glad to hear that that's supposed to be coming up because that I'm I'm, I'm just going to try to be a driving force and trying to get as many many people to see it, as, it, it right out of the gate as possible. That's that's on the top so of my watch list right now. And I'm reading yeah, right yeah. now that apparently for our Canadian listeners that um, it'll be on Crave, actually. Oh, oh weird. It, it, for, for a hot minute, it was on Shutter. I had it on my watch list. Interesting. Well, I'm reading yeah, that yeah. The, apparently the Canadian streaming rights are going to be held by Crave. So maybe it'll be on Shutter and Crave. Maybe yeah, because pushing it a bit wider, maybe for the Canadian audience. Yeah, because it's definitely on Shutter uh, in the U.S., but that would make sense that they'd be pushing it for a wider audience in Canada. Because, like you said, like that's something that is heavily affected by our geography and where we are. So it yeah. makes sense that Canadian director too. I mean, yeah, sure. yeah. Well, and, no, and, and see, and I think that that's really inter uh, an inter interesting uh, spring off point from uh, from uh, Little Monsters too, because it couldn't be in terms of like you mentioned that 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 one's a little bit like kind of. Uh, uh, how did you put it politically incorrect or or whatever yeah. 
Um, this is the type. This is the the movie to bring to Thanksgiving dinner to set your uncle off for sure. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm talking about. So yeah. good. So that good. has me so interested because I mean, um, just a couple of months ago, I watched one cut of the dead, <laughs> and for me, that kind of like flipped the script on how I could enjoy you know a zombie movie in 2019, basically because I could care less for years, really. <laughs> um, so that kind of piques my interest knowing that there's something a bit more serious a bit more subversive that i could sink my teeth into in yeah. that genre that's great that's mm-hmm. all i needed to know is that there's something something new being brought to the table there because like it's like yeah like i had mentioned little monsters it's the comedy and it's the characters and the story that you love about the, that you grow to like about that film but with this like if you're making a straight up zombie movie there needs to be a reason to make a straight up zombie movie nowadays and uh, a lot of people aren't doing that, except for I really love Train to Busan. I know we're all big fans of that right. one yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah that was but, great. But see, it's a different different kind. As an effective exercise, as long as it's like plenty entertaining, it can be good because I think that there's something to be said for wanting to, you know, give an experience to an audience too without um, – and, and I think that there are there are like social discussions going on in Train to Busan, but as far as what I you know took away from it, it was just really exhilarating to watch. Yeah, um, just a but fun, like fun it, movie. It, yeah, like, but is that is it a movie that I'm like discussing the actual components of with people moving forward? Nah, not really. Blood Quantum, I'm going to be talking about for years. Awesome, good to hear. Cool, uh, Boozy, you got something else? <laughs> yep. Uh, oh, it's hard to follow that up. Uh, speaking of uh, zombie films that touch close to home for Canadians, uh, I watched David Cronenberg's Rabbit from Woo! 1977, I believe. Nice. Dude, you I, I, logged you logged the Suska sisters one then. Yeah, I, I'll get oh, to that. Okay. <laughs> oh, so you watched that one too? Okay. Yeah, I watched both of them. Okay. So I watched them back to back, and I watched this one first, and I really like this movie. I, I actually uh, think for Cronenberg films, it's it's actually a really good film. Um, the story. Whoa, 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 whoa! You just said for a Cronenberg. Yeah. Film. Are, you not, yeah. are you not a fan? Yeah. No, I'm not saying that, but like uh, most people talk about a lot of his other work as opposed mm. to this one. Yeah. yeah, they always mention Videodrome or uh, Scanners yeah. or something like that. Or, or The Fly, yeah. Like nobody really talks about this movie. And I think this movie actually is, uh, it's super well done and it tells a very interesting story. I, I like the idea of how the zombie outbreak goes. And then there's a lot of, uh, what would it be, drama between the two main characters, which really helps in a movie because if you're not that interested in the characters, what's happening around it becomes less interesting, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have, have you seen Shivers? No. That's uh, the, the movie he made prior to this one, which also has, uh, uh, use, uses the form, as it were. Uh, it's it's okay. zombie-esque. So, like, I mean, uh, early body horror to him seemed to be very much, intri- it seemed to be kind of zombie by way of J.G. Ballard type stuff. That yeah. it, it, if you dug Rabbit, it's, it's, it's worth going back to that one yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun with this movie, and, and it's uh, interesting that it uh, was for Montreal, I believe it was where it's filmed and set, is taking place, but it's also kind of timely because it deals with a lot of, like, how you deal with quarantine and how you deal with uh, that, like, stuff like that, like the CDC gets involved in everything, so it's, yeah, it's a, that was a fun movie for me. There's a, there's some really interesting stuff about the early Cronenberg uh uh, if, if, that's worth going back to check into because he was getting a lot of that stuff funded uh, through grants and stuff like that. And when those movies were released, 
there were these film critics that came out who, you know, didn't didn't get what it was that he was getting up to. And they said this movie like I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing at best, but it was something to the to, something to the effect of this movie is a vile piece of trash. And you should know that because you paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, th- there was basically like a critical uh, like hunt on Cronenberg's head at that time because he wasn't he wasn't considered this like auteur yet. He was considered like a deviant because uh, right. especially his first batch of movies like Scanners, I think, was the first movie he he had that like got a lot of steam. But like stuff like like The Brood uh, is another one uh, that uh, all of his early stuff is like very, very, very visceral. And um and really subversive and there's a lot being discussed but if you aren't dialed in to presume that that horror is going to be discussing those types of issues you're going to presume the worst of it and the canadian public absolutely presumed the worst of it yeah which is funny too considering uh who remade rabid which is the saskia sisters Uh, who also were controversial and they they took some heat specifically in saskatoon uh, which I think was it at the Broadway Theater, or was it? Oh, no, was it Roxy uh, Scott that you might you might know the story a little better than I did? But uh, John I was going to show Dead Hooker in a Trunk, which was their first movie, right? And then they they had another movie, uh, and it it got like uh, protested and shit. Was yeah. it that? It, it got barely protested. Let's let's yeah. let's get real about this. One so, like yeah, no one gives a fuck. Yeah, uh, it was that and another movie called The Taint, which was infinitely more offensive because uh, yeah. dead hooker in the trunk when boiled down to his essence is really a movie about a group of people it's a road movie about a group of people who are trying to actually if anything protect the integrity of the body that they're moving and try to take it to like a, a good resting place like in the essence that's what the movie's about so yeah. as far as this notion of like it's offensive fuck you because it's yeah. it's it's, in, it's in title alone, and if you can't survive a provocative title, and I mean some people can, I know that that's like I like okay, I I may be outstepping a little bit here because like I understand that there are the uh, uh, necessity for for trigger things and whatnot, and that that <laughs> that title has a load of them, um, yeah. and so I do understand that, but the taint was infinitely more offensive. Yeah, but, oh, it, that the movie was uh, amidst a bunch of other. Uh, films that were pulled from that theater and then moved to the Broadway because uh, my my boss uh, Kirby Rochenko at the Broadway Theater uh, is really big on public discourse and he was not uh, I mean fr- frankly not afraid to take the project on when it needed to be moved he just said like do you want to talk if you want to talk about the movies come down and talk to me about them if you yeah. if something upsets you come and tell me what that is because otherwise we're talking about uh kind of uh a, a little bit of we're talking about vague notions we're talking about abstraction here like come down and have a conversation with me yeah. and then at the time well not at the time i'm co-host of real to real on cfcr as well we try to get somebody anybody that was actually upset about that movie to come on the show and have a discussion along with us and john about it which at the time especially like i mean a lot of my opinions about that have calcified since then and i i sound like i have a like stronger opinion about it but a lot of it has to do with trying to deal with the people who alleged to be upset um they didn't do any research they didn't they don't know anything about the films they saw a few words and were set off by them and uh, the further we dug in, the more we found out that it was kind of semi-politically motivated and motivated by people who wanted to be seen to be being outraged about things, which is very oh. offensive. 
which is very offensive to people who have legitimate nits to pick over things like yeah. this. And that's like th those people should be m more angry than anybody else. Like uh, anyway, anyway, that. Yeah, yeah that no, it's just it's interesting because then they go on to direct uh, they direct a remake of David Cronenberg's <laughs> Rabbit. And now yeah. I want to hear Boozy's thought about this because I've seen it. I don't know if uh, you've seen it, Scott, but I've seen this. I, film. I watched um, it with John. It gets points for having Mr. Phil Brooks, CM Punk in it. Yeah. Uh, I, They're I good think, friends with him. Yeah. They, I, I, um, really, I really like him in that. Uh, uh, what, what, what was that movie he was just in where he was the... Ghost uh, on the Third Floor? I still haven't seen it. But uh, Ghost I, on the Third... Girl on the Third Floor? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I thought he he specifically was really good in it. I actually, like, I don't have a history with him other than being an MMA. Like, I like I like mixed martial arts a lot. And uh, seeing him being destroyed uh, on on uh, UFC, a couple of UFC cards, I, that's, I don't really know wrestling very well. Um, but uh, I, I thought he was really good. I enjoyed him. Boozy has him tattooed on his body. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, you're no, just, just his logo, <laughs> yeah. not him himself. Yeah, <laughs> um, I that's think, the next I, one. I think they did a really good job of showing that they really like Cronenberg films, especially with how they take the ending. That's a very David Cronenberg kind of ending for a film. Um, overall, it's not amazing. I don't want to say anything bad about it because I think it, it had a lot of great ideas and it had a lot of smart things to do. It just it felt like it started falling apart at the end, trying to wrap up an interesting story, I guess. Mm -hmm. they, yeah. they, just, they crammed a lot. They had the basic idea, which I think no one's actually done. As much as I liked the Cronenberg version, I don't think for that story, neither of these films do it justice, because I think that's a really good story to tell. Um, but they took it in their own interesting way and kind of added some elements that you see in a lot of films now, dealing with uh, like medication for for things and stuff like that where it takes it kind of in an area i don't find as interesting yeah i think my my main issue with them they try to be really edgy in their stuff and uh i felt like that was a big case in that film and like in my experience with it i also like don't need to see the Soska sisters snorting coke in a bathroom and I, I didn't like, understand why they were they didn't really add anything to the scene but they had a lot to talk about they're the know. it's because yeah. they're the brand man they're they're the brand they're trying to make themselves the twisted twins which they are like which uh, there's lots of fans for them out there but yeah it didn't didn't really work for but, me but, but i'm happy, mean, like, happy you kind of liked it props to them for for carving out their own niche and and really going for it i think if whether I was it works the, or not i think if it if i was in the same situation i'd do that too um yeah but yeah, it was just, it, it kind of, when you set all that aside and you look at it as a film and as a remake, it, it was ambitious enough to try some new things, whether they're hit or miss. It, for me, it didn't feel all that amazing, but yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, do you guys have much more that you got to talk about before the main feature? That was my I last mean, thing. That's like your last I, thing? Uh, not unlike yourself, I've just been doing nothing but spending loads of time on Tubi. So I've got lots to talk about, but I don't. I don't need to. Like you said, there, there, there's a very good chance that the uh, main feature could be, uh, could be. It's uh, yeah, it's gonna be thick. a little long in the teeth. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one more, and then we'll get on to the main feature here. And then me and Scott will make. Well, Scott and I will make mm -hmm. a Tubi list to yeah. uh, recommend <laughs> to people. But. Uh, uh, to be taught ten. <laughs> yeah. There's so many and so many good. Like I mean, horror titles for sure. But like There's I've a been Scream Factory channel. It's unreal, unreal. Yeah. 
Exactly. And it's all free. Like you can That's get this for free right now. Com right now. Yeah, it's oh, awesome. And 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 uh credit where credit's due. Uh another former guest of your guys is uh Tyler Baptist is the one who turned yeah. me on to Tubi. Yeah, it's great. Um cool. All right. Uh, I got one last one that I want to talk about and it is The Signal from 2014. Have you seen this one, Scott? Um I'm I don't think so. I, the I'm reason the, yeah, the reason I'm asking oh, Scott and not you, guy. and yeah, not you guys, is because I have you guys on Letterbox and I know what you've seen. <laughs> uh, but so this one is directed by William Eubank, who uh, wrote and directed uh, Underwater. Uh, it was written and direct, er, written by William and his brother Carl Eubank, uh, who did Underwater as well. Anyways, this movie was enthusiastically recommended to me by Aaron B. Kuntz when we had him on to talk about alien invasion movies. This was one that he left off his list because it's not straight up uh, an alien invasion movie and it's not even necessarily a horror movie but it's definitely one that should be mentioned on the show um, so the story goes on a road trip Nick and two friends are drawn to an isolated area by computer genius when everything suddenly goes dark Nick regains consciousness only to find himself in a waking nightmare uh, so yeah this was one that uh, Aaron spoke very passionately about and uh, I generally agree with Aaron on most of his thoughts on movies we have a very similar taste uh, so I wanted to check it out for myself and this was one that honestly I I didn't see it when it came out because I saw the device like I saw how divisive everyone is feeling about this one for the most part I saw really negative things and they were all things that you know are things that I wouldn't normally be into. Also, William Eubank had just uh, directed the Angels and Airwaves movie Love, uh, which was uh, an atrocious pile of shit. So I didn't have much interest in seeing. I didn't have much interest in seeing what else he had to say. It wasn't until Aaron's recommendation and seeing Underwater and how that's actually a decent movie um, that I want to go back and check this one out. And yeah, man, this is it's a really clever and interesting story to watch unfold. Uh, it has a bit of a young adult feel to it, but it's kind of like the best possible version of one of those young adult stories. So like it does have kind of the aesthetics of, uh, of like a maze runner or something like that, but it's definitely very adult. Uh, but I think one of the things that makes it feel that way, the young adult way is the cast. So you have Olivia cook who was in me Earl and the dying girl, um, Bates motel, uh, what else has she been? She's been she in was like in, uh, Ready Player One. I'm yeah, sure. Ready Player One, the first Ouija, uh, Thoroughbreds. Uh, I think she's really good, but she, man, this chick just cannot escape having one of those ventilators up her nose in movies. Because <laughs> like she, she has one of those in Bates Motel, and also in Me Earl and the Dying Girl, and in this. <laughs> so it's like, man, and those were all around the same time. Like around interesting thing to be typecast with. Yeah, I was like, man, how do you how do you feel that you just look perpetually sick? <laughs> and then uh, the the main character is Brenton Thr- Brenton Thwaites, who uh, went on to he was the star in The Giver, which was not uh, a oh, good. God. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> he 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 does not have a very favorable filmography. He was also in Pirates of the Caribbean, like four, I think this was sure. uh, Gods of Egypt. Ah, the, the, the gentleman's Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, exactly. Uh, Gods of Egypt, that gigantic pile of shit. Uh, Maleficent, he was in that. Uh, But anyways, he's really good in this movie. And I think that everyone in the movie was really good. I think this movie is super unpredictable and it's original. And it's one that I could understand why it's, it's one of those movies where people, you go into it, the first half an hour of the movie is completely different than what you end up with. So it's one of those movies that you have to, you have to be on board with 
being okay with watching someone else's story like this. It's not going to go in the direction that you want it to go in. If you're wanting an alien invasion movie, which this movie kind of sells you as, as it kind of is, you're not going to get that. You're going to get something a, a lot more than that. And I think, yeah, it's got strong performances across the board. There's really inventive ideas. It's really well shot. Uh, if you're a fan of underwater, I recommend going back and checking this out. Cause this guy's got some chops and, I'd like to see, I'm very curious to see where he goes next after seeing that I really enjoyed The Signal and uh, and Underwater. But The Signal is also one that I could see being substantially better on repeat viewings. Uh, it's one of those ones that it's very cerebral. It's very like, it's one of those ones that's going to make you think a little bit and they leave you little breadcrumbs throughout the movie. And I think it's one that you can discover a, an almost entirely different movie on a second watch. Uh, so I really like that when it comes to films like this. Like, so big recommendation for me is that's the signal. I'm looking and, uh, at some of the like just like production design for this movie, and it looks pretty cool. Like, it looks yeah, interesting. You can tell that he definitely got a little horny with the slow mo. Um, like he liked <laughs> he liked making it look really pretty. Like he he's a very cinematic filmmaker. You can tell that right. he he wanted to make the movie look big, and it also stars Lawrence Fishburne. Like he's, yeah, so like, I don't know, I, I definitely, good. I definitely recommend it, but that well, is have, all. I got one thing up? I want to bring up here really quick. I might okay. as well mention, I've been, ha this morning, I should have mentioned earlier, I've been sort of um, in crisis over the announcement of an Under the Skin TV series potentially happening. What? TV yeah. series? What? Yeah, the rights were acquired by Silver Reel, They're like an international um, financier and uh, distribution sort of thing. And they have the international rights to the film, and now they've acquired it to uh, the series. The TV, they're going to make a TV series for Under the Skin. So. Well, if it makes you feel any better, it won't last for very long because it, it, the the the, uh, the appeal of that is is not going to it, it doesn't stretch out into a televisual audience, generally speaking. Well, like, I just hope it doesn't happen. Is more or less what I hear. <laughs> Same with like the Parasite TV show. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, we don't, I don't need to fucking this. talk about that. That's stupid to begin. Kyle, with. I just want you to know that we're all here for you. Yeah, like, you can we're gonna get through this. Out of all the movies, like, get out of yeah. my face. Silver Sorry, I, yeah, I lied. And also, I've noticed that we're at 53 minutes on this. I okay. did not think we were going to go that long in this. This will be a long episode, but why don't we take it to an even an even hour before we get into Nightmare? I have a, I have one more thing I can talk about, and then also Scott can uh, offer up one more Tubi recommendation uh, just yeah. to, to even things out here. <laughs> so I I was recently, a friend of mine, Jason, He as he moved out to his childhood home, he inherited his farmhouse uh, out in the prairies of Saskatchewan. And he, like myself, he grew up a, a huge horror movie fan, um, but he doesn't find a need for all of his horror comic books anymore. So he found all of his old horror comic books in, in storage that he hadn't, he hadn't seen them in years. And dude, the guy basically he basically gave them to me. I paid oh 20, wow! I paid, I paid twenty dollars for this. Twenty dollars for a box of just amazing comic books. And in here, I have like uh, there there's a, an entire run of Nightmare on Elm Street comics. There's an entire run of these are all. I have the entire runs of um, in two thousand seven. I believe it was D DC owns what a subsection of DC is called Wildstorm Comics, and they put out a series called House of Fright. And uh, in that, they released series for Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Chucky, and J uh, Friday the 13th, all the big names. 
And so I have the Texas Chainsaw ones. They they are modeled after the remake Texas Chainsaw, which is kind of I like that remake just fine. So it's cool. Uh, obviously, I would prefer original uh, Gunnar Hansen looking Leatherface, but uh, this has been really cool reading through these. I'm going to talk about the Nightmare on Elm Street comics that I, I read the whole uh, the run that was released between December 2006 and August 2007. And uh, it's just it's basically it's stuff that I'm sure you can find online now. I'm not going to talk about too much because from what I can see on eBay, you're these are insanely expensive now to get so it's going to be hard for people to i'm sure you can find them for free online to read there's lots of places that you can read old comic books that are out of print um but it's it's just more more so loaded with the types of freddy hijinks that you know and love uh so if you're into nightmare on elm street and stuff like that seek out these comics because they're a lot of fun uh they're they're obviously they're more in line with something like a sequel but they're fun so that's a. Uh, I'm going to talk more about them at a different date when we're not running so long. But Scott, give us one more Tubi recommendation. Uh, you know what? Off of the Tubi list, I I, I, I kind of touched briefly on this and and mentioned that uh, the, that I was doing a, a lot of my Tubi watching. Uh, what was not from the horror canon, so I actually might. I might sidestep this. Uh, okay, that's fine. From, from, from what I have, uh, one of one of the movies that I don't think I've ever heard you guys talk about on here before. I mean, this is arguably maybe not. It's not horror genre, but it's horrific. Um, was I rewatched Deadbeat at Dawn? Have you guys ever seen that before? No, nope. It's a it's a uh, Jim Van Beber movie. He's the guy that did uh, the uh, Manson Family movie. Well, I guess there's been a bunch a bunch of them. That's what it's called though. It's called Manson Family. With yes. Really generic title. Um, uh, it took him like 10 years to shoot that thing. Really good movie. Really, really good movie. But his, his, the first time he made an, a splash was with a movie called Deadbeat at Dawn, which is this like low budget brawler flick about the, like, kind of like, I mean, the rules of what's going on are kind of amorphous. It's just a bunch. It's, it is a bunch of like scumbags and these weird eighties gangs cruising around like cemeteries and having random fights that they don't really entirely explain, save that it's like a turf war or whatever. And, um, He's he's the star of it, which makes sense because I think there's periods of production where he was probably one of the only people he could count on to get his movie made. Because if you know anything about Jim Van Beber, he's supposed to buy I don't I don't know the guy myself, obviously, but like by by uh, reputation, he's supposed to be a little difficult. Um, I mean, he hasn't you know made a movie that's taken less than like four years to get off the ground, and a lot of it has to do with like fallouts with people he's working with and stuff. He's an in- he's just an intense guy. He's, he's an artist. Um, but Deadbeat at Dawn, I hadn't seen in quite a few years, and uh, I oh my god, was it ever exciting to watch again? Um, just uh, tactile filmmaking because that's all he had access to. I mean, it was shot in the eighties. It's uh, it's just loads of guys in denim cruising around beating the living shit out of each other. But for real, like he kind of <laughs> he kind of sort of knows a little bit of like martial arts, and so he's always showing that off. But like, I mean, you when's the last time you guys guys saw somebody use nunchucks in earnest? A white guy use nunchucks in earnest <laughs> out out demon on the, wind. I'd rather not say, yeah. uh, Kyle. <laughs> so so like it it uh, it. Uh, like for for it, it it really is only directed towards the genre crowd. It's way too weird and way too violent to really appeal to anybody else. But eventually, what happens is in 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 he he tries to get out of the gangs and they they murder his girl. So he's got to like 
you know, take to the streets and basically murder everybody. And it gets to a point where he's being like driven into a brick wall with a car and he's cruising around screaming, bleeding every, it's just awesome. So I, I, it, it recently came to my attention. Like I kind of was under the impression that everyone had seen this movie. And I think that I was completely wrong about that. So uh, I, I wanted to make sure I got a, a deadbeat at Dawn plug in. I can't remember. I think arrow video did the last re-release of that. Um, it, there, if you dig into the backstory on the, the digital re-releases of that movie, there's like, there's, there's compilations online of like phone calls between Jim Van Beber and former distributors where he's like screaming at them about transfers he's not happy with and stuff like that. So even the history of this movie coming out and being accessible is interesting. Just it's, it's awesome. Wow. Awesome. That, that might be available on Tubi. I, I'm not sure. I, I have it. Like I have a DVD of it, so I just I rewatched the DVD. Well, I mean, all three seasons of Flavor of Love are available on Tubi. It's true. So oh, I think shout out Tubi. You can put you can put that shit on everything. So I mean, honestly, yeah. awesome. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of sold now. Yeah. You, well, it all it took was Scott to come in and tell you guys about Tubi. I've been talking about it for fucking ten episodes. We well, should have said Flavor of Love, and it that's was, true. Like. <laughs> You should have said uh, Ernest goes to school, and I would have been. Yeah, like, there's there's so much good shit on there. Wait All right, guys, until uh, you guys see the list, and then uh, the next episode, you can apologize. There, easy. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah, looking right true. now; it's very wild. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're going to get on to our conversation. The first conversation on A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984. Stay tuned. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet but something is coming to get them there's something out there isn't there you just see cuts happen what did that lieutenant i don't know there's a coroner got to say he's in the john puking since he saw it they're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah! Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. No! Ah! She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. <laughs> no one will survive. Ah! Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. All right, and we have reached our main feature in which we're going to start off our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, starting off with the original Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, which was written and directed by Wes Craven and starring Heather Langenkamp, Johnny Depp, Robert England, John Saxon, Ronnie Blakely, Amanda Wise, and a brief, uh, a brief uh, scene with Lynn Shay, who is the producer Robert Shay's sister. Uh, the story goes: a monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely demise. So, 
uh, I was telling you guys briefly about this before, but uh, this has been a long time coming. This has been something I wanted to do when we started the podcast, and now here we are, 161 episodes in, and we have our friend Scott Hamilton here, big Nightmare on Elm Street fan. Let's uh, let's hear from you, Scott. Let's hear about your history with Nightmare on Elm Street, what the film means to you, and uh, just openly talk about talk about it however you want. Well, see, this this to me, you mentioned earlier in the show uh, t- to do with like your affinity for for Child's Play two and how like that was a a, a big uh, uh, stepping stone for you. I think that the first it, it probably wasn't the first horror movie I ever saw, but the first horror movie I remember seeing was Nightmare on Elm Street Part three, and it was the you know the one movie that you know made a huge impression and like I just I carried with me for for you know like three weeks after watching it it was all i was thinking about so it it's funny because i think i did the majority of the series like i was you know i think 10 or something like that like maybe even younger uh the, I, I did a lot of the rest of the series before i got back to back to this one which i'm semi thankful for because it it gave me a little bit of perspective because by the time i got back to the original movie I realized what a different animal it was from the rest of the series. This, so true. And, and, and was one of those early impressions uh, for, for me in horror and, and how important it was because I, you know, at that point, like I was a little scared of everything to do with the series. But when I got to that movie, it was all of a sudden this. It's interesting talking about Nightmare Elm Street retroactively because Freddy Krueger, everyone has an impression of Freddy Krueger, and it's not one that invokes fear, generally speaking, because he is, uh, like uh, uh, Heather Langenkamp says in New Nightmare, he's, you know, he's King Kong, he's, you know, everybody everybody knows who Freddy Krueger is, and it's easy to forget just how scary of a figure he is and this movie if you can get into it the film and sink into it uh early enough it's it you you realize that this is not the same character that we've all been reared on he's something else entirely it's a different energy and it's not and and i which makes it so that um Despite the kind of brand familiarity that exists uh, in 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 the world, I don't ever feel like I'm watching a Nightmare on Elm Street movie when I'm watching the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it's something it's else. So different. Yeah. It's so different, and the character has a different energy about it. So one of the important things about the movie, I think that uh, kind of we get started with right away uh, is they set the tone for what's to come in terms of uh, a suspicion of uh parental figures and authority figures and that they even when they think they have your best interests in mind generally speaking they don't understand you they create that generation divide immediately which is i think important to a lot of a really great horror but also not utilized all that much uh and i think it does it more effectively because there is a lot of um there's a lot of suspicious glances there's a lot of unspoken words like it's everyone kind of knows what the story is and everybody knows that uh nightmare on elm street that you know the the freddy krueger is uh kind of the it's the sins of the parents being revisited on the children and all that kind of stuff but when you're watching it the first time you don't actually know that and so it's a bunch of it, it is all all of the authority figures, all the people that we rely on for safety, uh, all all looking around and not saying much, looking really nervous all the time. And this kind of hidden world of what goes on outside of your control and immediately puts the viewer, I think, or at least for me, my experience, 
uh, in a state of disease because you feel really out of control at that point. All of your primary figures are people who um, are being kept in the dark and you feel very much that way because something horrible is happening and especially due to the fact that it stems from uh, all of this otherworldly dream stuff, you are there's you're so out of control of the experience you're going through and i think that that's really unique um because control it, because uh, that, that does that creates that sense of um uh I, and, and this speaks a, a lot to i think Wes craven's sensibility he's a really sensitive guy i find him as a writer to be a very very sensitive um uh writer and he's very sensitive to those characters and he uh, as a consequence of, of that sensitivity, uh, you end up uh, in a state of vulnerability that you are not allowed to get to, especially with most 80s genre fare. This is the antidote to the kind of Friday the 13th style of storytelling where you do not care at all about your central figures, which like, I mean, I think we maybe even talked about it uh, in the prior episode I was on. I, you know, I, I, I love the experience of watching a Friday the 13th movie, but this treats human life differently. Um, so yeah, yeah. It, it really does it, it, because there's concern even for the character, even the rough around the edges character is uh which is um uh rod uh is yes. is, is given uh, he, he's given moments to be a sensitive character and to for be sure, a sympathetic yeah. character um so what the this movie has going for it uh some legit acting some writing and direction from somebody it's important to remember too that Wes craven i think a lot of this preamble has to do with me white knighting this film as as not unlike the Evil Dead episode, as a work of art, because I think that it's really easy to lump it in uh, because of what ended up happening with the franchise. With just it, it's one of the you know, it's one of it's one of the heads on the Mount Rushmore of horror. And Absolutely, yeah. So it's treated that way uh, in respect from the community, but at the same time, it's not. I, I feel like uh, we all acknowledge that the Mount Rushmore is a work of art in its way. This to me is a gallery piece. This isn't something that you take the kids to go see uh, and buy a hot dog and look at. This is this right. is something that you go to. Like I, I feel like is best experienced when you're trying to to take as much out of it as you can. You have to remember that like Wes Craven's roots are 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 largely like I mean going back to the Last House on the Left for God's sake like that that movie is structurally based on an Amar Bergman movie. Like his sensibility is derived very much from the art house. I would I would even argue that Nightmare on Elm Street is a good training wheels movie for for art house film watching, because a lot of it the sensibility of it is is outside of, I mean the genre being discussed, but it it's also not repelled by that either. There's so much to unpack in that regard, uh, and I I, I kind of just wanted to I guess maybe preface a lot of this by by saying that I think that. Um, that so so the, the 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 organs of this this particular animal are very unusual, and so I'm going to have a tendency when it is called into comparison to other <laughs> other horror movies, I might bristle a little bit because I think that it's I think I think it's bigger than that. And upon repeat viewings as an adult, I've only felt stronger about that. I think that it. It has a tendency from time to time to be a victim of budget and a victim of, a, you know, in terms of filmmaking, it, it didn't get to spread its wings the way it should have on occasion. 
on other occasions, it also made the most of those parameters and, and ended up like doing some really inventive things. But it, it, it to me, uh, is one of it. I see. It sounds like I'm going to say this with every movie. Uh, it's because we're br- we're bringing you on for two massive movies. Scott. Yeah. So it's okay, <laughs> to, people. People got to understand that you're coming on for The Evil Dead and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Those are two fucking huge yeah. pinnacles yeah. in horror. Like absolute classics that yeah, are so. hard to really digest in even two hours, yeah. really. Right. So feel and, free to blow it as hard as you want. Okay. And so, so I guess <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Without, without, getting, <laughs> without getting, yeah, like even too far into the into it, I just, I, I feel like it's important to acknowledge that maybe I am maybe a bit too much of a fan of this movie. That's why you're here, buddy. <laughs> so happy to have you here. That's great, man. That's awesome. Uh, what about you, Kyle? Uh, what's your experience with A Nightmare on Elm Street? It's a good question. Actually, and I'm happy we have Scott here because he might be able to fill in some blanks for me. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I was trying to remember if I had... I've, I saw this film when I was younger in high school, I think, for the first time. I think I was in grade 9 or something like that. But I'm, I can't remember if I saw this at the Broadway or not. I know I saw Dream Warriors at, at the Broadway, and I'll talk mm-hmm. about that next week. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember if I saw the first one there or not. It would have been around like 2010, 2009, something like that. Uh, Does I, that check out? Uh, I wasn't at the theater yet at that okay. point, but I would have been at the screening, and I don't believe so. Okay. I, that, I don't believe so, yeah. I was trying so, to yeah. remember if I had or not, because around that time, there was I was going to see a lot of like the quintessential sort of uh, slashers. That's how I watched yeah. really all the, a lot of those films for the first time. And most likely it was due to Tyler Baptist. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. As a matter as a matter of fact, the uh, print you would have seen part three. That was the thirty five millimeter screening at the Broadway. Uh, I think I lived with that print for a couple of years in my house because I was. Oh, really? I, I, yeah. Well, I was roommates with Tyler for quite a few years, and I'm pretty oh. sure while I was living with him, we were housing that housing those reels. That's Did you awesome. sleep with it? <laughs> um, Did you I, have it in your bed? Uh, was there a shrine? <laughs> well, see, part three is important to me, but it's not uh, like I, I don't think about I wouldn't put that one on a shrine. I, I think that that one, despite the fact that it's maybe arguably the most celebrated one, I think it has some problems. Well, yeah. um, I I have very, very vivid memories of that particular screening, but I have kind of like this hazy memory of whether I had seen this or not for the second time in the theater. And I was wondering about that. That's why I brought it up. But, but you had seen this before. You grew. You knew Nightmare on yes, Elm Street. Yes, yeah. Far the, be far before you joined the terror table. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah. even if I think, but at the same time, the thing that's really um, a testament to this film is that if I even watched it for the first time last week, I think I would have just known a lot about it to begin with. Like right. so much of this film has been injected into popular culture in a million different ways, but it still feels so fresh. Like that was just the biggest takeaway I took from it watching it this time around for the show is just how original it still feels even though everyone's ripped it off to death for decades now but um it put has a, put, a, put, like... a, put a pin in that i want to discuss the the it being ripped off like keep going but i, sure, I, I yeah, want to get yeah. back to that well because well i mean i mean you would be the one to probably uh you know list many ways it has but i think there's, there's some obvious stuff where it has but it, it excels in a lot of interesting ways where it has that, you know, really interesting premise. It delivers it in a really, you know, succinct way. You know, it's something that is relatable. You know, dreams. We all we all have nightmares. Like it's a really common, like humanly quality. 
that uh, is just generally scary and really vulnerable, and that's what makes this film like terrifying. I love Freddy in this movie because, well, we can talk about it later, but like Freddy in this movie is like um, genuinely scary and genuinely, um, you know, he's not even just like a physical character; he's like a mental presence, right? And like that's what's even more scary to some extent. Um, or maybe plays with the audience in an interesting way. So I don't know. Like, I've always fondly lo- looked back on this film, and uh, I have always remembered it as being, you know, to me a pinnacle of the slasher genre, but a pinnacle of horror in general, even just beyond Freddy as a character, because obviously he kind of holds his own, you know, importance just as like an image. But um, this film in itself, like, just it's such a treat. It has so many good things going for it. It has like. A little bit of campiness when it needs to, but it's never heavy-handed. It's not, like, in your face. Even, like, some of the subtext isn't, like... It's not banging over the head with, like, um, you know, this kind of, like, sex versus violence sort of handling that's happening. But it is there, and you can grab onto those things. And Which is I don't the know. thing that that's explored, I just lo- like, I love this in. viewing. I love this yeah. viewing. Awesome. Cool. What about you, Boozy? Uh, when did we put this on last for Drunken Cinema? It was during the film festival. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was on the Friday, right. Yeah. Um, so I've seen this movie quite a few times, and I always find different things every time I watch it. Um, how do I talk? It's so hard to talk about such a huge franchise, especially one where, like, maybe I don't have the same kind of roots that, like, Scott or Mitch has with it, where I feel like I can look at it through a little bit different of a lens. You have to consider the time it came out. Um as much as it is a fresh idea and everything, you do feel at some points that it it dates itself with just kind of how the characters act, which is understandable for when it came out. Um, I, it's, it's really cool that they had such a, like, it's such a different idea for a, a character versus everything else that was going on at the time. It's really nice that it, it went its own route and gave it, like, its own backstory. So you never, you never filled in the blanks before you were told them. Um, so it's like, it, it was, it's, it's way different than, than you look at a conventional slasher like Friday the 13th or Halloween. I did find two scenes in this movie where I wonder if it was, the idea was kind of taken from Halloween. Maybe that's just me looking too much into it. Um, well, the, I, the, the, the very basis of Nightmare on Elm Street is totally 100% inspired by Halloween. The same with a lot of other things, but no, that's I, a, I, I just meant two scenes in particular. There's, there's one where... Nancy's looking around when she's like thinks she's being followed to school. That reminded me a lot of Halloween, and also the actual school scene with Lynn Shay kind of gave me those Halloween vibes. Um, those are two specific examples I have. Um, but yeah, this is a totally fun movie, and it's it's definitely like Scott had said, it's it's way different from the Freddy that pe or that people know now, uh, where he's kind of like somebody who can be on a box of cereal now. It's you know like he's, he's his face is on everything and it, it's kind of different where like when you're watching this movie it's taken so seriously so I think that that's very interesting is how much things have changed since that original movie. I always call him. I always call like there. There's a line in the sand where he turns into Bugs Bunny. I always call yeah, him yeah, Bugs yeah. Bunny era Freddy Krueger, and yeah. this is not Bugs Bunny era Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Also, shout out to John Saxton for playing pretty much the same character he did in Black Christmas. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> he's a gruff yeah. detective dad guy. <laughs> Absolutely. He does yeah. it well. He does it well. He does. 
Um, yeah, this is, uh, if you've listened to any episodes of the terror table, you know, this, this movie's huge for me. Uh, this franchise is big for me. It's debatably my favorite franchise out of all of the big ones. And, uh, but that's the thing is like, we're, you'll get to know more about that as we go through the series and we're, we're talking about, cause obviously not every single one of these films lands. A lot of them heavily miss the mark. Uh, but this first movie, it's just, you can't take away from how classic the idea is and how, um, Wes Craven was really onto something completely different here. Yes, he took there. There was a general theme that was going around in film around this time when Halloween was such a huge success. I think that it's unfair to compare this movie to Halloween, and it's unfair to compare all of those films together. Even though that's what people are—it's their knee-jerk reaction to always go, "Yeah, but Jason's scarier because of this," or "Michael's scarier because of this." It's just that Freddy's an entirely different entity. And yeah. I think uh, it's it's so different. You you have him like ha- having Freddie be able to talk already entirely changes the game and the playing field that you're able to, what you're able to execute with this character. And I think like basically all, all of the best ideas they come from they come from as cheesy as it sounds the heart and Wes Craven like Scott had mentioned he's a very sensitive guy and uh like it, when when he passed like that would that was a death that really really rocked me uh because his movies played a huge role in my life and I believe that this is his magnum opus I think this is his best movie by far and I think that Freddy is his greatest creation and um I think it's really cool how he came ac- came up with the idea and how it how you're able to if you've seen anything with Wes Craven, if you've watched any interviews with him or read anything by him, it's unbelievable to know that that mind created something so sinister. And I think that speaks volumes to not only the movie, but horror as a whole. He created this incredible property, uh, like one of the most sensitive, kind-hearted people, created one of the most terrifying concepts in horror. And I, I think it holds up till this day. I think this first movie is it's close to a masterpiece. And um, I'm still I'm one of those guys like Scott where I'll, I, I will grit my teeth. And I, I like I know that there's problems with Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. but I uh, I'm not always quick to admit those because I just love it so much. But the thing is, I also think that the flaws are it's a product of what this overall thing that what freddie became it's a it's a product like you can you can see from the very the very the ending of this movie which is i'm gonna say absolutely atrocious it's the worst worst part of the movie is the ending and uh, i love the ending yeah i don't know about that we'll 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 get in we'll get into it we can talk about it but like there was a lot of uh you can clearly tell that that wasn't it it felt off brand for what what everything else that Wes craven was doing for the rest of the movie you can feel that that wasn't his decision and um, but the thing is, at the same time, it kicked the door open for all the other possibilities that you can do. There's countless times in the series, and we'll talk about it in Freddy's Revenge as well, where the character grows substantially every single movie. And I think that every movie, um, it becomes Robert England's franchise and more so than anyone else's. And obviously, it's all rooted back from Wes Craven. But Robert England really tr- truly turned this character into Bugs Bunny, <laughs> into something crazier every single movie. And uh, it it steadily escalates every time. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think for the most part, this movie works almost front to back. And uh, I think as a kid, there's nothing scarier than this. I, I, I think there's, th- like for me, there's no debate out of all the horror icons which one's the scariest. For me, honestly, if you just take the original Nightmare on Elm Street... 
Freddy by a fucking mile is by far the scariest because it's it's kind of like but at the same time the debate comes up about like you know us horror fan neck beards will be like but he's so cheap and he's like Superman and it's like because like Freddy can do anything like because he is kind of a a cheaper character but the best part about the franchise is when you find his weaknesses and uh, I think that that's one of the best parts about this original is that you have the greatest final girl in horror, which is Nancy Thompson. And it's because she's resilient, she's smart, and she fights back. And you don't see that in any of the other classic Friday the 13th or any of the classic horror movies. Like, debatably, you see it a little bit at the end of um, the original Friday the 13th, um, something like that. But even with, uh, I love Laurie Strode. Uh, but she gets her ass kicked. She just gets like manhandled around the around uh, around the house in Halloween. And then in Nightmare on Elm Street, you see her. She's using. She's being resourceful and she's fighting back. But at the same time, Heather Langkamp isn't a great actress, and she didn't need it to be. She didn't need to be a great actress to pull this off. Um, but I think that's one of the things that kind of shines through. You know, all these years later, we can kind of see that she's a little stiffer than than. Other sorry, it looks like you're whether, gonna say something. whether she's a good actress or not, I think no one else could have done that role the way like she did. I think that was her I, role. I, yeah, and that's the things I still I love I love Nancy and I love Heather Langkamp. And that's the thing, is like even though I, I think it's her like there are flaws in it, but I wouldn't change a thing about it. Mm. And well uh, she yeah. she's definitely not one of those flaws. She to a large degree, again, the 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 heart that exists at the center of this movie. Uh, I mean, whether that was through some of Wes's projection or whether it was through, I mean, to, to, in, in, in interview, a lot of the credit for what makes the movie pop is often given to Hang- Heather Langenkamp. Uh, and uh, yep. she, she doesn't give it to herself. She never does. She always talks about how brilliant Wes was. But Wes basically, he ostensibly says that without her heart that he wouldn't have been filming anything you know that he he had a character but without her to inject all that life into it like he you know the movie's dead and um and kind of the gas of the whole thing yeah yeah well she makes it believable she brings she brings a lot to that role which you know like well so i i would make the distinction there so you mentioned the difference between final girls and something like you know friday the 13th halloween that kind of thing the situation is totally different and uh but that's one of the that that's where you start talking about the separation between you know this film and I, i i i kind of almost bristle against the notion that like Freddy Krueger is certainly a slasher. He is the, there's no, yeah. there's no doubt about that. But um, in terms of behavior of film, like the, 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 one of the reasons why the characters like Laurie Stroh don't get to grow in the similar fashion is because they're in, um, we, we are only introduced to them in survival mode. All we have, all we have time right. to do is, is get to know them in the middle of a crisis. Whereas Nightmare on Elm Street is, uh, is something that presents a situation in which we have to deal with long-term psychological ramifications of being stalked, of, of, of not, you know, it, this isn't two hours out of uh, life. This is like a, the gradual chipping away of the psyche. And uh, that is a scary notion. You know, it, it, it is that it happens in every one of them. You're, we start talking about the psychological head space of these people and everybody thinks they're going crazy. We don't have time for that in a regular slasher movie because we, I mean, it's not, it's not pertinent to this, to tell the story. 
never is it more defined that there's more going on than in the you know that that discussion because we don't I don't I don't really care about the psychological headspace of Kevin Bacon before he gets his <laughs> yeah. arrow through his chest it doesn't matter to me I care at at some point uh, or another we touch on each of the characters in the Nightmare on Elm Street the original we touch on their headspaces and we uh, what is going through their minds. Uh, dictates to a large degree what w- we end up, uh, the situation they end up in. Like, I mean, Tina, Tina, you know what? Amanda Weiss should be given a lot of credit for this too because I think that she's almost an equal as yeah. like, I mean, to be told that, okay, you're going to be our sacrificial lamb to uh, to kind of uh, bolster this sense of vulnerability moving forward. Like, w- we have to kill something we care about in order to get to, you know, the proper emotional gravity and it's going to be you uh we 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 need to care about you as much as we care about our central character and i think that amanda weiss is uh uh she she uh, i launched right into giving heather langenkamp all of the credit amanda weiss is really good uh unbelievable and, and her dreams specifically i think are just uh, like some of the scariest stuff in the genre some of the yeah. some of the imagery from those I, re- I still remember putting this on on VHS the first time I watched this movie. And when so we, we have this cold open where we don't know where we are. We're with somebody who's clearly very scared. Things are going on that make no sense. All of a sudden there's this lamb running through a like this cavernous hallway. I don't need to really know the full context at that age. I didn't need to know the subtext of any of it to be intrinsically frightened of everything. And part of that was her selling it. A big part of it was her selling it. And um, that uh, kind of... Uh, I mean, th- that I, there's more. Uh, I think there's there's more fear in that cold open than there is in the entire Friday the Thirteenth franchise. That opening yeah. dream sequence without context is so scary, and that's the heart of it. It's a nightmare. As 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 you guys already mentioned, like one of the things about the how universal this is is that sensation that everybody knows what it's like to have a bad dream you don't understand you're out of your element you have no control which is funny because in trying to get this movie made for three years Wes Craven was told over and over again even by Sean Cunningham that no one's going to think this is scary because they all think it's a dream dreams aren't scary what what kind of what what's the logic there that makes no, no sense of course like we're on the right side of history now we get to go like well of course it's scary read the entire script for Christ's sake but it, it's it, it, like it, he was told for three years by everybody but new line cinema no one's gonna be scared of this they're gonna think it's a dream and go like well wake up dummy yeah which is nonsense yeah it but, is and it's same with like yeah I like to yeah you pointed out too that like like because Wes Craven came up with this idea because he had read about it was like a string of deaths that were happening in the 1970s. Uh, it was like b- a bizarre occurrence the, where there was South e- Southeast Asian refugees who were escaping to America uh, where they eventually di- they died in their sleep. And I guess medical experts theorized that they were dying during intense nightmares. Yeah. So he took that idea and then mixed it in with the idea that Craven, he also credits being scared as a child after waking up in the middle of the night and noticing a man wearing a fedora and sweater staring up out his window. The, obviously, these are all things that if you're a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, you know these things already. Uh, I, but still the thing, I still feel that way. I still feel that way. That was just Lou Bega. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> 
And that's where he came up with the song too. Yeah, he was working currently. He was on Mambo number three at that time. Yeah. (laughs) No, but like uh, it's, and then obviously the glove came from uh, Craven thinking that like bears were terrifying, which uh, Boozy and I can attest to. He's right. He's 100%. The scariest thing in the world to us. And like having the idea of giving him a bear claw or something like that. It's it's just, uh, and I also like the idea. Sorry, I don't mean to derail everything here, but like the, the, uh, the common knowledge that Freddy was originally written as a child molester. Which uh, right, Craven yeah. he he eventually decided to take that out after a flood of cases uh, were taken over the mainstream me- media of child molestation. So I think that was a wise move to take that out. Um, but it's also it, it change it changes the rest of the the franchise because not to get too far ahead, but you don't root for Freddy in this movie, which is what's what's something that's special about it. I feel like once you get to dream warriors, even in dream warriors, you're rooting, you're rooting for him a little bit because the cool, the kills are so fucking cool. And like, he's doing he, his, his capabilities are infinite. Well, um, that's probably but, helps with them making him not a pedophile. Exactly. A that's point, the thing is it's, you don't want to be like, yeah, go pedophile. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to root for a pedophile. I, yeah. I, I, I always find it much easier to root for a child killer when I know that they're not a pedophile. Exactly. Yeah. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's always feel, a silver yeah. lining. You just always want their line. blood. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you just want to see them kill kids. You don't want to see them fuck any of them. But, yeah. but, but so, so here's the thing about that, though. In the so he honestly, first off, like I mean, I think that there is an intrinsic sense that he's probably a pedophile. So let's get real. Yeah. Um. But uh, there, well, there is. Like- it's the implication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's implied, um, but he is in terms of his quips and the fact that he he is he is a vocal killer. Uh, in he you know he has his moments and he has his one liners in 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 this movie. They are never intended to be funny or charming. They're no. creepy. It's much more of that Black Christmas, you know, collar ilk where it, you're not. It's not intended to like give you a, like a even like a gallows humor laugh. Like it is just. It's intended to mock the victim and uh, put them and and because so much of this is you know feeding off of the fear of these people. Um, it, it it's it's intended to to you know make them uh, to, to compromise them and i think that that uh, like if you look back on all of the like quippy parts of the first movie they're not very funny they're not no. and i don't nor were they intended to be they, it's for his own amusement and that was one of the things that makes him scary again in terms of yeah. the sense of the unknown um he knows why he's finding it funny. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed yeah. to get any like. Whereas, of course, by the time we get, you know, to welcome the prime time, bitch. Like, I mean, yeah, the, that he's mugging at the audience at that point. That is that is Bugs. That's the beginning of Bugs Bunny, Freddy Krueger. Um, whereas in this movie, like one of the things that I mean, first off, we're talking what is it like seven minutes screen time for the entire movie? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 that and he obviously he makes he makes an impression that we we don't we don't need him to be on screen all the time in order for him to really like get under your skin. But one of the reasons he does is because your mind does so much filling in the blanks of what it is. I mean, you you only have a, a vague sense of who he is. He's only really filmed in 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 shadow. 
Uh, you get a lot of those really brilliant shots Craven did where like he'll pull focus and all of a sudden, you know, like, you know, something will move in the background or the foreground that you didn't realize you were so close to. But there's specifically there's a shot of the glove in which he pulls focus and all of a sudden the glove moves out of frame or whatever. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I know that type of stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, him, him, him uh, wrangling into the frame from like way off in the distance someplace, but not nearly far enough to not be scared. Uh, to, to be scary like all of these uh, these things are are, are they, they build a really terrifying character and then when he finally does speak like there's nothing like I'm your boyfriend now is clever yeah. it's not funny though no it's, it's not really it's creepy. creepy it's, it's really creepy especially creepy. since you it, when you add the tongue movement and yeah yeah like you said yeah there's there really isn't anything funny about but this it's, one it's all memorable though or quotable like every, yeah. everything about it even though yeah sure it's not intended to be funny it is clever that's a good way to put it i think it's yeah. clever and that's why it's you know quotable or memorable and it stands out because yeah even even his existence feels that way in the film despite his dialogue like yeah. every time he's even like there's one point where he's kind of like skedaddling down the alley, you know, and it's like, it's like a little, it could it's be a considered hokey. a little funny maybe, but it's, yeah. it's Is not that... intended that way. And it's more so, it's more creepy. It's like this kind of like conniving, like really like slimy sort of existence that, yeah, that he's is playing creepy. with his food. He's playing yeah. with his food. Yeah. Are you talking he... about like right after, like, is this right after he turned into stretch Armstrong? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which again, that's another example of something like that, which like, okay, it's a little like grandiose and maybe over the top to some extent, but it's never uh, strictly comical. It's more so just like, um, I don't know, that kind of weird sort of creepy imaginative thoughts it, it's, I don't know. Sur it's surreal and surreal, it's also that's what I'm going it's for, not yeah. intended to be that's the where the you know the franchise went eventually those arms yeah. would have like reached out and grabbed her or whatever but it's more a sense of not being able to escape that that is created by doing that gag it, it's not as much uh it, it, you know like as what does he eventually do he just ends up tearing her apart yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not. Uh, you know, like I mean, I think he does. He, I think his arms might extend at some point, or maybe not. Whatever. Um, uh, like you know, it's it, it, it's more there as a visual uh, kind of cornering uh, that happens to her. The same as when he starts when he is running off in the distance, uh, and and you see him, and then he pops up in the foreground. Um, cuts his finger off. Yeah, and yeah, and jumps out from behind the tree and all that kind of stuff. Like, um, it, none of that works towards a, an actual act of violence that uh, affects her. It's more just psychologically. It's a bunch of it's it it it's a pile of things that aren't supposed to happen that are unnatural and 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 make you realize again like that lack of control is so important yeah. and. Um, there's so much of that in that dream. Uh, and, and then moving forward, anything to do with Tina in this movie, I think is terrifying because then her used as a uh, visual pawn moving forward. I think the, the body bag stuff, some oh of that God, is yeah. so, not some of it, all of it. It's so terrifying. Every gag to do with her being kind of like almost used as like, you know, fishing bait almost at the end of a hook for Nancy. All of the visuals for that 
are terrifying. Well, he and that's the thing is he's totally because he doesn't in that first dream sequence he doesn't kill Tina there. So yeah. that's what he's je- he's building fear, and then she's going off and telling her friends about it, and then they yeah. start having dreams about him and everything. So he's a very psychological slasher, and yeah, yeah it's uh, I can basically mirror exactly what you just said about Tina. Like, I it's kind of blowing my load early here, but uh, Tina's death and like everything to do with Tina, I think, is the highlight of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, well, it's the scariest part of the franchise for me. Like, there there are moments that come close. <laughs> Uh, that I'm going to talk about in future episodes. Like there, there are definitely things in the sequels that I love close to to that. But I, I think that that's one of the most that is one of the most, if not the most, memorable kill in a horror movie is when Tina's being dragged across, dragged up the wall, and then she's on the ceiling and she's reaching out and screaming. I think her scream is so visceral and terrifying. And having uh, having uh, what's it, Rod, Rod, Rod's reaction to everything and how he's. The whole idea about how he, which is play, this is played with in a lot of the sequels, is having him being framed for her murder because of everything. It's just, it's a terrifying, paranoid concept that just generates more fear, which gets more people dreaming about Freddy. And I think it's brilliant and uh, terrifying. Yeah, no, I, I was gonna chime in when uh, Scott was talking about it. I think body bag Tina is probably the best scene for me in the movie. It's just it, when you're talking about because there are certain scenes for me that that uh, through the lens of time aren't that scary, but I do think that the Tina body bag as like kind of like a messenger is mm-hmm. like really good, and it's actually really scary. Also, Tina and several other people in this movie just randomly spout out facts that I was like checking while they were talking about it. Because right at the start, they said that weird things were happening, so there was probably an earthquake coming. And I, she made it sound like so sure that this is a uh, like a, a, a fact. So I had to go and check it. And I'll just have to let you guys know that, no, there is no correlation. Good to know. <laughs> Great. I, I, you cracked they, the case wide open. They, I think <laughs> they, they even recall that New Nightmare, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I forgot um, about that. Also, one scene you guys hadn't mentioned yet that's probably one of my favorites involving freddy is uh where right, nancy's what? sleeping and he's coming down to the ceiling he doesn't oh my do anything God. to her but it's just it's yeah. so iconic to watch that happen yeah. that that will always be one of my touchstone uh things to bring up when people talk about effects work and ha- like you know what what's you know like the, as far as like digital effects moving forward I, I i i you know we're finding ways to massage them in so that they're not so jarring but they still aren't as good as a piece of fabric and a dude behind a false wall. Mm-hmm. That, that is yeah. so perfect. Exactly. It's it, 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 what, what do you change about that scene? And then pensively looking at the crucifix, like, I mean, in terms of pacing and building a sense of, like, of dread, I mean, you can throw all the computers in the world at me and they're not going to get the same. There's a, there was 100%. a sadden, Yeah. So you have that sense of, like, foreboding followed immediately by a sense of sadness because I do care about these kids and the fact that this is happening to them bums me out so much. Watching them live around all of these things happening is, is like, the pacing that scene this is this is totally changing tack because that is kind of a, more of a technical effects discussion but um the fact that he took the time to have her you know correct and check the wall and everything like that we don't have time for stuff like that anymore you know what we do and it, the fact that we think so lowly of the audience that we don't think we have time for that anymore is 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 a real shame cuz like right. 
we watching them live is what makes them believable. Oh, I love that scene. Well, there's, like, there's a lot of like visual language in this film that really works. Like there's so many scenes that are just completely practical effects, obviously. And a lot of times really simple solutions. Like you're talking about like satin on a wall, like, but things don't always have to be so complicated. And that's the thing. That's what I think makes this film like work in a lot of ways is the things that are scary are the really simple things, you know? Right. Yeah. And it, at the same time, it's still terrifying when you see a rotating house. Well, yeah. Like, but, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, maybe not everything is like you know, <clears throat> little and simple, but exactly. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. But well, not everything, but the sense of scale, though. Uh, this scale, is my, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Th- this is the big thing when it comes to effects stuff. And I'll maybe like try to make this my last word on effects. But the big thing is, is you're not supposed to, especially on first viewing and especially in horror, you're not supposed to be thinking about how the effect was, was made or was made while it's happening. Because if you're wrapped up in the story and you're, you care about what's happening you're not thinking about that and like i mean granted when i saw this i was i was young enough that i wasn't thinking about it but having just watched it last week i, I mean i'm aware that it's the you know fred astaire dancing on the walls gag i know i know how they did it but while i'm watching the movie and i'm like and i'm roped in i'm not thinking about it i'm yeah, thinking absolutely. that the effect is terrifying the same with um one of the ones that i was thinking about and like i mean from I, I still don't know how they did it. It's probably a simple like this might this might garner a scoff. I'm not sure, but one of one of the images that really always bothers me is um, in the middle of Nancy's uh, dream sequence in the school when she sees Tina uh, and she goes to chase her out into the hallway, and then we see the body bag and we see the body bag lift up. I don't really know how they did that. I'm not sure. It looks like a thing that's happening and i haven't really had occasion to like while every time i've watched it every time because like if i'm thinking about a movie if i'm concerned about an effect and i've seen a movie 900 times maybe i'll check my phone to see how they did it in the middle of watching it i'm always so invested by the time i get to that point in the movie that I'm, i'm i never think about it until i'm talking about it later two days with you know friends like it's 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 so effective and it's like the the imagery is so powerful that i'm not thinking about how they did it so like i mean the scale like i mean they you even even the rotating room i mean it's easy to think of that about that as a large scale effect but even that was on a budget like i mean yeah you know and it, yeah, it broke and almost killed a couple people. Or I guess that was yeah. Glenn's death later on that they almost killed some people doing. But, yeah. yeah. But, I and like that's how it. none of us have mentioned... Uh, sorry, not to cut you off, Mitch. Uh, mentioned uh, Nancy's mom, which is yeah. a big thing we talked about after Drunken Cinema. Yeah, because wow. like, there were so many of the Drunken Cinema things. Was just, like You drink every time Nancy's mom drinks because she's drinking through <laughs> yeah. the whole movie. She and always... she's pulling out booze at all times. And the I think the bottle is everywhere. Yeah. As much as it is that it, as much as that is like a little funny anecdote or whatever, it totally makes sense that she would be an alcoholic after killing a child molester and then also dealing with the stress of her daughter now going through having memories of someone that she didn't she's not even supposed to remember. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that helps her character a lot is that yeah. everything Nancy says, she's just trying to calm her down the whole time or, or disregard the conversation altogether. Yeah. I think it totally. definitely does help. And I also even comparing this when we get into talking about the sequel what I like about this movie is that, like, everything Freddy does doesn't seem really ridiculously over the top. He's actually, like, pretty, uh, what, what would the word be? Uh, he's not super flashy in this movie. He's reserved to an extent. Yeah, he is. It's, 
Yeah, I mean, even compared to two, like I think a lot of the Definitely things he does in this, and I, honestly, I think it helps with him being scary in this one. Yeah, honestly, the scariest parts of this movie don't feature Freddy, and that's yeah. like with the that's like true. the scene with Tina's death, and then also I can't believe we haven't brought up the how Rod Epstein himself, like that whole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we that just scene. have footage of this <laughs> yeah but like I, man that's that's another special effects gag that i i've never been able to get my head around like I, and i've seen never sleep again the, the four hour documentary like a hundred times now but like I don't, they don't talk about that that gag in there but like how they managed to do the the bed sheet hanging him like i i thought that was terrifying and but all uh, yeah. those are so effective like whatever the oh, bathtub yeah. the all the bedroom scenes all that stuff yeah. like you know, you're you're right, Scott. You're not really supposed to be thinking about that while you're watching it. And not even that you're supposed to, but you don't. Like, I don't... Oh, no. And, and yeah, let me be very clear. Yeah. The first 20 times I saw Nightmare on Elm Street, I wasn't thinking about any of those things. Yeah. It wasn't if until anything, I was I'm older. I'm like, wow, that looks fucking cool. Yeah. That's what it I It wasn't until think. I was older and yeah. I was becoming, like, obsessive with this stuff where I was like, how did they do that? And, like, yeah, I've seen yeah. the movie so many times. But it, but it is that type of movie that you can still, like, even though I've seen it so many times, it's like The Evil Dead where... I can turn off all my lights and I can close the windows and like close the blinds and it's still an effective horror movie if I want it to be. If you pay attention to it and give it the respect that it deserves, it's a yeah. scary fucking movie. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to be watching for the scenes and like the the joy, like the cinematic joy. And and you never find this like outside like horror is where you can go to get the best fix of this is is that uh, feeling of elevation you get when something works and you you know and, and and Nightmare on Elm Street is so chock full of that, like just effective filmmaking. You know, like whether we're talking about, you know, Citizen Kane or I don't know animal house whatever yeah. like it, it like it doesn't matter what type of movie you're talking about in terms of moments that make you like kind of just take the wind out of your sails for a second and you just go uh there's so many moments or at least for me in this movie and um and and like i mean just thinking about like while i was talking about the body bag being lifted up like i the, the hairs on my arm stood up when i talk when i was talking yeah. about that we're talking about one moment after another in that because the scene where she like when she falls asleep and he starts doing that the her classmate starts transitions into doing that stage whisper of shakespeare oh, straight oh, into yeah. looking out into the hallway the 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 kind of the mixture of the of the surreal and all of these kind of cerebral latent fears uh just uh, like we're talking about one moment after another of just like pure like uh goose flesh the entire way through that that's special that's Man. that that's yeah. not and, every day and that's something that's another thing that's kind of mimicked throughout the franchise is that the scares in the nightmare franchise are so expertly like meticulously planned out like like you said they last for like the, it's like it's like planning out like a really long tracking shot and where they just have it's almost like a roller coaster and and that's another thing that we're going to see in the future future episodes is that a lot of uh once again something that you shouldn't be thinking about while you're watching the movie but it's hard to not notice it as an adult someone who's been like watching a lot of these types of movies is you can really tell that a lot of this stuff was done on set, which you can't always tell in a lot of in a lot of movies. But it's because they're so perfectly like set up for the scares, and I think they they do a masterful job executing them. And I think that's something that goes on throughout the series. But yeah, that's uh, I I don't have too much more else. I think we've covered uh, Nightmare on Elm Street pretty well. But I if you guys have more question. stuff, yeah, I have one question, Scott. You might know because uh, you. 
you are the oldest out of any of us here currently, uh, <laughs> was, like, was Bath's hand in floaties a thing? The whole time I was watching, I was like, as a Bath enthusiast, I was like, that looks pretty comfy. Uh, the, the, the Bath, what? Like, that big inflatable hand she was, oh, like, playing. hand. Um, uh. My mom had one of those, yeah. Okay, that was a thing. Like they weren't comfortable though, because there's a. I remember, like, I mean, it it was fixed to our bathtub, and I remember that there was a seam running along it, so right. it would cut into your neck. So it didn't, oh. I, I never found it very comfortable. I, I, was, I was used to. I was wondering, like, like other people had to have bought this thing because I've never seen anywhere else show something like that. Yeah. Boozy it, loves it, his baths. In, in, it's like in, a claw one going, yeah. you know. <laughs> in concept, it's it's a good idea, but not in practice. I think oh, that's too okay. my, just, my mind is at ease. Um, quick, quickly hitting up wish.com. What's <laughs> up, Scott? Two two things. So, um, uh, I want to get back to uh, right off the top. We talked about how this franchise was kind of ripped off moving forward. I think that the franchise was ripped off moving forward. I feel like this movie for has as influential as everyone alleges it to be. I feel like the genre didn't learn any of the most valuable lessons from this movie. And it, it, it like the worst of the, the franchise was ripped off moving forward. And I don't, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Cause I'd like to think that people would be emboldened by a movie like this to uh, do something more artistically pleasing and to do something more exciting and to do something with more heart. Uh, but those aren't the lessons that are learned from, from this movie. And as a result, it remains very singular. Um, because if, if a movie, uh, I, I can't think of an, I can think of a lot of really poor movies that have ripped nightmare on Elm street off. I can think of falls. Uh, bad dreams. You guys remember yep. bad dreams? Yeah, yeah bad, bad dreams. dreams. Yeah. Uh, that that was the most blatant one. Uh, even had uh, I can't remember her name. Uh, the punk rock chick from Part Three was the star of that. One. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the 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 the, the big uh, takeaway for me is uh, like uh, I I think that this this movie exists on a on a plane that others were. I I think that it's the the proposition to try to reach these heights and this kind of level of ambition within a horror piece within a genre piece is so daunting that I don't think that uh, I don't know if it just intimidated people out of taking up the mantle in that way or I mean maybe I'm minimizing how <laughs> it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to do but I feel like the majority of what was learned was how to run a franchise and how to build a character and not how to tell a really compelling story so I, I do think that um, it's been ripped off ad nauseum, but I don't think very well, and I don't think for its finer points, which is great because it gets to remain a singular piece as a result. Yeah, very true. I also, one thing I wanted to talk about before I closed out too is that this was one of the movies, much like American Werewolf in London, was another film, and The Exorcist were films that I was first exposed to when my dad had a satellite dish. And uh, they would play movies and you could jump in at just like you could, when you click on it, it would just be the movie. You you jumped in whenever the movie was playing. So it was it would just be in the middle of the movie or whatever. And famously, I, uh, I the first time I saw the first the first thing I ever saw of A Nightmare on Elm Street was when I, I clicked on A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was instantly when Johnny Depp was getting sucked into the bed and blood wow. was splurred, like spraying to the ceiling. What so I'm like, I. 
Yeah, you can't think of a more fucking horrifying thing to to see for your first introduction to Nightmare on Elm Street. And then, yeah, it was pretty much from that moment on where I went back to the beginning and then I got obsessed with watching all of them leading up to Freddy vs. Jason because I was a youngin. I was like 10 years old at that point. <laughs> I guess, um, though, just to quickly wrap up, the last thing I wanted to bring up was um, in like a post-Scream world, watching this is really fun because I feel like you see so much of, you know, Wes in different ways, like watching this now, mm-hmm. knowing kind of like how he would want to sort of tell horror in different ways again years and years later. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't help but like realize how great he is at depicting youth in movies. Yeah, and like just the the way they talk. Yeah, sure, maybe a lot of the dialogue is obviously dated, but that's kind of inherent. Mm-hmm. But the way they exist as actual people that you care about ranged true throughout his filmography, and I couldn't help but get a lot of like, or see so many connections through Scream in this film in some ways. I mean, they're inherent because they're the same filmmaker, obviously. But yeah. Um, all the way back to last last house on the left was the same his uh, his yeah. youth characters like I mean the two the two main characters in that movie are very believable more believable than the parents and at that point he would have been closer in age and everything to uh, right to the youth maybe than their parents but uh, he I, I think he has respect for youth which if we're going to te- keep telling stories where youth are at the core of it we need to respect them it's immensely important yeah and yeah. I, I think I think it's elements like that that make this film a classic honestly because you can you can watch it as a young person or as an adult and still get a lot out of and a lot of empathy for the characters in you know on the screen I guess I don't know yeah absolute classic absolutely cool well you guys want to get on to part two Sure. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back with uh, part two, Freddy's Revenge. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside him. Fight him! You are not afraid of him. He doesn't even exist. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my children now. Freddy's Revenge. (laughs) All right, and we we have reached Part 2. So we're about to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Uh, this film came out in 1985, so just a year later, and it's starring Robert England again, reprising his role as Freddy Krueger. Uh, then we have Mark Patton in the leading role, uh, Kim Myers, Robert Russler, and uh, a bunch of uh, meat to throw to the grinder. Uh, this one, this one was directed by Jack Shoulder, who previously directed Alone in the Dark, and it was written by David Chaskin. And uh, the story goes, a teenage boy is, ha- is haunted in his dreams by, de- by a deceased child murderer, Freddy Krueger, who is out to possess him in order to continue his reign of terror in the real world. 
All right, so um, I think every Nightmare fan has like a Freddy's Revenge story or like their first time seeing it, but we have two people out of the four of us who this is your guys' first time seeing Freddy's Revenge, so that's uh, pretty exciting. Uh, but I'm going to do what we did last time and let Scott lead this off, and then we'll go on to you guys, and then I'll close off, and we'll, and we'll just open up the conversation and start talking about this bizarre film. Scott, take it away. I had a really weird relationship with this one growing up because I, for years, I mean, Jesus, I don't even, like, for years and years and years, this was my least favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I didn't get a lot out of it until I, I until I grew up a little bit, and I think started... Uh, appreciating maybe some of the subtext. And this was before I was prompted by like a lot of the discussion surrounding the movie, which obviously we're going to get into. Um, I'm curious about uh, like for, for you two guys, like, do you know, did you know going into this movie about its reputation? Just out of curiosity. Uh, yeah, from Mitch, some yeah. Okay. Okay. Just a little bit. Uh, I think it was last week or the week before I had spoken about, I had finally, I finally got a chance to see Mark Patton's documentary scream queen. Oh, I still haven't uh, seen so. that yet. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So yeah, I talked about that, but okay. yeah, continue. I knew, I knew a little bit of this of the subtext, but yeah. not a lot. Like not too okay. Much. Um, as time went on, I think uh, some of it had to do with how uh, poorly some of the other sequels were aging versus this one. But I started getting more out of this one as time went on, uh, until I was I was uh, you know uh, entertained by it. Uh, I think a lot more than some of the other entries. I think that it tries to do some. It tries to it tries and fails to do a lot of things that. Uh, were a result of them not really knowing what the franchise was going to be moving forward in that it is in terms of its it's like world rules and everything like that uh are are so are so loose and are uh so differing from the first movie and then consequently moving forward differing from the rest of the movies in the franchise as well you can tell they really didn't have any idea what the property was yet at this point because what we as mentioned in the synopsis it's a it's a it's a possession movie it's not a uh it, it's not a it's not a like regular nightmare on elm street movie it, it is a movie of, that that ostensibly has one dreamer in it because the majority of the film is is not dream-based the majority of it is supposed to kind of semi-be happening in the real world which again in terms of real world rules is very dodgy it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense um a lot of the supernatural things appear to be happening outside of the dreamscape uh they're i guess happening within the 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 confines of the main character jesse's head i guess he's maybe sort of kind of supposed to be dreaming again following it narratively it's a narrative disaster it makes no sense at all um i do like the one of the things i think that it does best and i think that each of the films actually does well every all of them except for maybe part four is it builds on the mythology surrounding the series i think that that's one mainstay throughout the franchise that works really well that uh, the way it expands on the backstory without kind of shitting on what came before it. And in this particular case, that's maybe arguably what works best about this movie is getting getting a little bit further, like, you know, discussing... Uh, well, they don't even discuss. It's kind of more sh showing what, what the significance of the boiler room was that you saw in the original film. 
and 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 in in such a way that it actually uh, helped rather than hurting. Usually, the more you show in a horror you know context, the you know the more you understand it, the less scary it is. It didn't make it any less scary. The idea that he was bringing all these kids to this refinery and like out in the middle of nowhere that's now abandoned is it's 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 creepy. Um, but the, uh, the, the, I think anyway, sorry, I'm getting tangential here, but like when I watched it as a kid, it, it, it doesn't have, I think the best kills. It's got some really good effects work here and there, but it, it, it doesn't have the best kills. It, it's, it's kind of mainly nonsense. Uh, a lot of the things that are maybe funny about it now, I needed to live a little bit more to understand why they were funny. Um, and it, it 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 doesn't hang together all that well. And, and and one thing that I've really taken on moving forward as an adult is how just how ramshackle it is as a story. It it doesn't like if you try to tell somebody about what happens in this movie out loud, you sound like a crazy person. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like like what is going on in the film makes no sense, which is the first of many, because we get into this moving forward in the franchise like you don't realize it while you're watching it while it's washing over you just how little sense is being made but that ends up being a regular thing because if you try to tell people what happens in the fourth movie it makes no sense the fifth movie especially trying to describe like is trying trying to tell someone what the point of the film is and why things are happening is, is utter nonsense, which is funny because in interviews, like the director talks about like, oh, well, in the first movie, it didn't really, uh, uh, you know, there's things I didn't really like it. I, I thought yeah. that it was haunting and it's like, motherfucker, yeah. <laughs> this is what you wanted from that concept. Are you insane? Which granted, I mean, actually, I should, you know, you know, the groundwork for a nonsense ending was laid with the first film because even if you like that kind of surreal, too many cooks in the kitchen, three ideas at once ending that was in the first film, it arguably doesn't make complete sense. It maybe makes dream logic sense at best, but it, it, it kind of set the precedent that we don't need to understand what happens in the climax. This movie, it, it, like one of the things that I didn't like about it growing up was like I just I left it feeling very much like I don't I don't really get what they're like I don't get the point like and it doesn't leave like any massive impressions on you from a horror standpoint but as a time capsule and as like this kind of socially interesting touchstone now it's a very interesting movie and occasionally very funny when it means to be. It's very funny when it doesn't mean to be. Um, I think it's one of the most watchable in the series from a myriad standpoints that it doesn't intend to be. Uh, so it's it's tricky, but I, I enjoy it. I, I come back to this one a lot more than other ones, but it's not for the reasons it was intended to be watched. So it's it's a tricky one for me, but I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Kyle. All right, guys, I'll set the stage here. Um, do you guys, are you familiar with the famous rap artist Eminem? Yes. Never heard right. of him. I've heard of him, yeah. Okay, so the year is 2002. Eminem. <laughs> he's on. This top is like of the, the, first of all, I just want to say this is like the 15th time you've used Eminem as a reference for something not aging well. <laughs> Let's hear it. I'll get to that. The year is 2002. He's on top of the world. 
Eminem show just came out. Eminem show just came out. He <laughs> won an Oscar. The man is really at the top of his league, hitting as fat as he could be. I'm happy you're you're filling me in on this because this is all stuff I don't know. He had a TV show. <laughs> no, he won an Oscar for his song in Eight Mile. It's besides the point. But <laughs> <laughs> you said Eminem show. Oh, that was oh, his album. The Eminem. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a great album, Scott. So, you got to give it a listen today. A great oh, album. Yeah, I'll get on that. <laughs> Fantastic, and arguably, uh, I think you know, you'd really like it. He's a, he's a great artist. White America. So, so, anyways, let's uh, let's fast forward two years later, and what do we get? We get the song "Just Lose It." Yes, arguably one of the worst songs ever made. True, um, true. That is the type of drastic drop in quality I experienced mm. watching Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge. This is the "Just Lose It" of films, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I found it funny when I shouldn't have, and that made me sick to myself. And I, I just didn't get like I. This is what I knew would come eventually. I knew eventually on the show I would have to endure something that um, I'd have to be grasping at straws to uh, you know, get something out of. We and already I, did the sorority row review. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't quite go that far. And, and Scott, you basically, you know, you, you touched on anything positive I could talk about this film already, to be honest. But we can elaborate further. But yeah, like I said, like to me, this is just it, it makes it's a, it's just messy. It's confused. And, and honestly, it's almost immediately embarrassing with the opening sequence. I feel like compared to how the first film introduces Freddy, you know, he's building his his claws and you know everything is really like there's this um, mystique and some um, sort of sinisterness that is immediately engaging right this, this film is just i feel like it throws everything out the window and don't get me wrong it does shine in its own way in certain parts but if i'm just comparing the two which is kind of the you know the basis of this episode it's not very entertaining for me. <laughs> and I've, I love, and we'll talk about it next week, I love Dream Warriors, and I feel like this film is sort of like, it's just in limbo between those two ideas, you know? Because Dream Warriors is very different than the original film, but it's great in other ways. Um, and it kind of uses the ideas and maybe the lore of Freddy and Nightmare to its benefit. But this... this um did not hit for me. <laughs> no. I wanted it to because I felt like I could um I felt like I could maybe uh get something out of sort of those like socially conscious ideas or sort of um you know uh maybe Well that's see that that's a step too far because calling them socially con just just because they're subtext subtext doesn't mean that they right. were like were were the writer to have been maybe an uh like a yeah. closeted oh, gay male uh, then that would be something but he was just somebody who was trying to exploit uh, yeah. teenage sexuality, yes. like the uncertainty of that, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's also why I can't actually even enjoy the subtext that much because it almost feels unwarranted and maybe not a uh, totally. He's not the right person for the job to be getting, exactly. conveying this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I understand it's a very important film to a lot of people, and I think that's great. Um, but for me, unfortunately, no. <laughs> Gonna rank a little low on your nightmare uh, list. Well, yeah. we don't know that yet. You we you have no idea what's ahead of you, bud. But that's what makes me scared. Like, how many more just lose it? Am I going to? <laughs> oh, dude, this like, this is not just lose it. Like, like when does it get to relapse? Like, when is when is Slim Shady LP Part Two gonna happen? Like, 
This is, I don't know. This is kamikaze, my friend. <laughs> I, I, I need to know, I, I know that this has kind of blown up your guys' spot a little early. How many of the movies have you seen? I've only seen the first and third, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, that's really exciting, actually. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, yeah, I'm interested why... to hear what an adult has to say about these <laughs> movies. Like, like yeah. I know I, I, I grew up with a bunch of kids knowing, like, that we, oh, this is so cool or whatever. Like, you know, that. Yeah. but, like, getting fr getting a fresh take on all of these movies, is that's, that's yeah. a really exciting thing. That's one really cool. Of my, one of my... Uh, one of my reasons for like when boozy and i decide to ask kyle to join the podcast is one of the one of the things that i use to explain like i, I know kyle doesn't like when i say that i have to justify having him on the show uh, but he's not generally like he doesn't have like a wide wide knowledge of like you know deep 80s horror movies and everything like that but i use the example that everyone everyone knows of a podcast you can go to to listen to a bunch of guys blow a nightmare on elm street like i think it's going to be exciting hearing some guys who aren't as familiar with it who are adults who are also well-versed in, in film that can talk about it. Um, and before but yeah, I we'll, get hated on too much for not liking this film, I man, just Kyle, spent an hour, you, you won't, you won't. Dude, Kyle, Kyle, <laughs> I'm just pe saying, people don't like this hour, movie. I spent an hour blowing the first one. So as yeah. far as I'm concerned, you know, I only feel this way because I strongly enjoyed the original, okay. more or less. I, I, we're going to come back to you, <laughs> but I just want to say that I feel a hot take coming on. Boozy. Okay, so I thought I had seen two before, but apparently I haven't. So <laughs> this is my first time watching two. Um, I guess I'll take a hot take. Is I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I, I can set a of bunch of shit aside in this movie, and I think there's some really cool stuff in it. Um, like one of the most memorable moments for me, like right after, when, as soon as we started talking about it, is Freddy literally comes out of another person. That, yeah. that was like, one of the practical dude, effects I was talking about that rules. The, I love the transfer, that scene. The transformation, yeah. Yeah, whereas I'm saying, like, Nightmare 1, it was very laid back. And this one, he's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, some of it's super weird. A lot of it's super weird. Like, the whipping the coach in the showers? <laughs> That's with, a towel? Towel? That with a towel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it was so weird. And, I, like, all the signs point that I shouldn't like this. But it was just, like, so much fun. Oh and no! The, the whole main character, like wandering around, being confused not only sexually but like just confused <laughs> overall the entire movie was a lot of fun for me. I was like, it's "Yeah, you don't know what's movie. going on." <laughs> I the mean, this is. I wish I would have seen this sooner. This is it, like an '80s gem for me. The, the <laughs> last time, not time a I, good thing though, if you're happy that you're so confused, well, at least someone else is. Like, that's no, but the, a, this is well, very much. While I was watching it the last time, I was like, "Oh man, I think Boozy's gonna fucking love this movie." <laughs> Yeah, I'm, to, to steal one of the Mitchisms, this movie was uh, bonkers. Yeah, it's very fucking bonkers. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I liked a lot of it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. I just don't think I was ready for something this bonkers. Right. right. After something well, that honestly is a work of art. Also, <laughs> I don't want to say too much like that. I love this movie when I when, how I talked about Nightmare on like the first one. I'm making it seem like I enjoyed this one way more, which isn't true. It's just I've seen the other one before, so this was a right. completely fresh experience that I could be excited about. See, I thought you were going to come in in natural boozy fashion and be like, I like this one way more than the original. <laughs> that would have been insane. That would have I, I thought that was going to happen. Yeah. I, I, I think this movie has a lot of fun in its own way that's very distinct to it. I can't think of anything that's quite like it. And that's kind of a, a benefit to it in a lot of ways is that it stands out whether you like it or not. 
That's one of the most jarring things about it is that it comes off the heels of the first one. If right. it was buried deeper in the catalog, that would be one thing. And because a lot of us as kids saw them out of sequence, it didn't. It doesn't occur to you just how nuts it is that they were. They followed within a year, followed the original with this movie. Yeah. Um, like, but but that's the most jarring thing about it is that they were like, well, how do we follow up that movie? Let's do, uh, let's change all the rules. Let's make it a possession movie. Virtually no actual dreams in it, uh, and 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 like like with really wonky rules that don't that only really yeah. serve. Like, I mean, I'm not even sure what they service. It doesn't even make any sense. No, but I that's, uh, see, I'm I'm halfway there with you, right? Because I as I as I said, I actually thought it like I think it's more fun as an adult. I guess more out of it than I do out of a lot of the other scenes. I don't even mind the possession angle. I thought it was interesting that he ended up places he didn't want to be or didn't know about because of Freddy. Like, oh, I don't, I don't mind. Over his sister. I think that's really cool. Like, oh, that's one of the scenes I liked, actually. Like, the yeah. idea that, that it was forcing him to do things like that. Like, that element is, is I think, really, is really interesting. It's just to dive into that in the second part. That's yeah. crazy. No, no, I get where you're going. Within 12 from. months. Yeah. Yeah, and like you have this, it's like this such an incredible idea that is made. The groundwork is laid by Wes Craven, and then we're gonna jump right to this. Like that's it's just crazy. It just feels right, like so a bastardization my... of like what the ground what groundwork yeah. was laid out. Yeah, this, I this, love... yeah, they, it's like they had a board meeting after. They're like, yeah, this is really like intrinsically terrifying. We're so you, you know what you know what's missing though a pool party. Oh my god, kid. <laughs> and what a pool party it was. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here we go. I really, really like this movie. I really like Freddy's Revenge. And it's not, I did not have that sentiment when I first saw it. And I think it's because for a number of reasons. So Jack Shoulder, I think the director, I think he he clearly couldn't have been further out of his element. I think the guy couldn't handle the brutality of Freddy Krueger. I think he lightened him up in the movie without even knowing it. Like, And uh, what I mean by that is my main gripes with the movie are what Scott had mentioned, how the, the rules are bent so, so far yeah. out of proportion. Well, like they're, they're not even bent. They're, they're undefined. They're Nothing bro- is yeah. defined. Yeah. That's, like, that's, for, that's a good way to yeah. Really, honestly, my only real issue, my only real issue with the movie is the pool party scene. And that's because I I hate Freddy showing up at a pool party. I think that's it's incredibly stupid. And it also it 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 breaks all of the rules. That's, it negates it, it all of no, his tactical nature. Exactly. It makes no sense. It doesn't make know. any sense. The film kind of tries to set it up like the first time you see him where he doesn't like kill Jesse immediately. And you're kind of like, okay, like this is a different angle they're taking. This could be interesting. And I think, you know, like it is an interesting idea of like more of a possession film than a nightmare based film. But things like the pool party scene and like any other time, not any other time, but a lot of times when he actually emerges, it's nonsense. Like I shouldn't be seeing Freddie in this way is always how I'm feeling. I think uh, put a put a big pin in that because I want I want Mitch to finish for sure. Yeah. But I I I have a lot to discuss. Repossession. Oh I yeah, didn't mean to and do that you know and that's 
that's definitely going to be something that I uh, that I talk about a lot here is that I really like the idea of the possession story. Once again, I think it's a little bit of an undercooked idea to go with for your second movie. And it's without a doubt there's a significant drop in quality. But I think the whole storyline and concept was a rele- that was released for this movie is pretty far ahead of its time. And I don't think I was ready for it. And I don't think that the world was ready for it, clearly. And uh, I don't know. I think it's 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 actually a brilliant concept to incorporate Freddy into. Uh, but I just think I think it's a very strange decision to put Freddy at a pool party with sunglasses on at a barbecue. Might it might like that? You're, just you're you're pulling stuff from part four. He doesn't have yeah. Sunglasses sorry, sunglasses, yet. Sungla- sunglasses are from the beach. He's, he's, but uh, he's, yeah, he's not on the beach yet. Yeah, but at the same time, that <laughs> that made that moment. It, it just made Freddy become less scary because you instantly show that he yeah. can bring bring him into this world. Um, but at the same time, I think like there there's so many. At the same time, that's that's one of the moments that you have Freddy. That's he famously ad libbed the line, uh, "You're all my children now." I love that line. That, that's, that's no that that line and the actual shot is killer. It's Im- that's immortal. There's parts through peppered throughout the entire series that are like immortal Freddy classics that are still so good, and that's Robert Englund being at the heart of that character and knowing what's right for it. Totally, and that's where I was trying to what I was kind of getting at in the our review of the first one is that I feel like this is really where Freddy like where Freddy takes over the franchise, obviously, because you see he's you see him a lot more. He's doing a lot more crazy things. I think. Uh, I, like obviously this movie is pretty over the top, but at the same time, there's only there's a I checked the kill count. There's ten kills in the movie, and uh, that's including the coach, which I had a significant problem with when I was a kid. Uh, like obviously, it's not scary watching a guy get his ass whipped literally <laughs> to death. Like he's getting a towel whip, and I'm like, the, as a kid, you're going to be critical of that. If you're actually if you're going to be anyone as a horror fan, I don't understand how. They thought that that was going to be treated with, be responded to with anything other than a laugh. And I don't think that it was meant to be, it definitely wasn't meant to be funny. If you watch the documentary Never Sleep Again, the director who took care of that scene, he totally had no idea that he was putting in some kind of gay subtext and that the the scene wasn't going to read as scary. I don't know how. I just don't even like a weird it. kill, like subtext yeah. aside. It's just like a strange kill. But then, yeah. Then, also, Jesse but, didn't really care. He just kind of stared the whole time. No, no, because his coach was a dick. But <laughs> yeah. uh, then, but then at the same time, you have uh, Freddie. He he kills seven pool partiers. Uh, so there's a scene where he can rack up the body count a little. But at the same time, it's kind of lame kills. Like aside yeah. from one where he shanks someone in the stomach, which I always appreciate um, when it comes to Freddie. But I don't know. I think if you take Freddy out of the pool party, I think you have a pretty damn interesting movie with some, like you mentioned, the the effects work is, I think it's fucking great in this movie. I think they do some really inventive things, specifically in the transformation scene that Boozy was talking about where you have Freddy crawling out of Jesse's stomach. But also, actually, before that, I love the scene where they show uh, Mark Patton screaming. They show Jesse screaming and you see the eyeball rolling around in his mouth. I love that. I think that's so cool. Such a cool little trick. And then you see his arms being kind of hacked up. And uh, I just think, and also one thing that I really want to hammer home is I truthfully think Mark Patton was so good in this movie. And that's not just because I'm a fan of like, after I saw that documentary, I think he's so good in this movie. And I think it's because he's like so erratic throughout the entire thing. Of course he takes it to 11 a lot, but what else are you going to do with this material? I think he did the best. I think he did the best that he could with the material. Granted, um, 
something that we haven't talked about yet is that no one on set of this movie, uh, allegedly, everybody thinks it, the only person who knew about the gay subtext was Jesse and uh, the writer, Je- uh, who I keep forgetting his name. I have it written down here. See, and this is significant. I think this is worth discussing that by the time we get around to Never Sleep Again, he finally admits that he wrote all of this stuff in his subtext. But if you go back to the box set, like the original DVD box set uh, for Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, there's another, I don't remember what it's called. There's a documentary about the entire series on there. Yeah. He, he denies still, it all. He still denies it up to that point. So within about 10 years, he changes his tune. Um, and who knows? Like, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I believe him that he intended to do it, but he denied it for years as well that it was it, that it was in there. I don't I mean, that's one of the I mean, that's totally burying the lead. I don't know why he would ever deny that because it's it's it I is. Think a, it's the, it's without a doubt the most interesting part of the movie, but I think he also was embarrassed by the way that it was received and the way mm-hmm. that people were taking it. Like obviously, like people were looking at it as a joke, and as much as it can, it's pretty easy to look at it that way. But I think it's also like there's some really fucking spooky shit in this movie, and I think there's some good, like really cool the the effects work help it out a lot. I specifically love my the scene that I love the most in this movie is the scene between. Uh, Jesse and who's his friend that he supposedly has little feelings for Grady, oh. his friend Grady in the bedroom, uh, in in Grady's bedroom that has a sign that says "No nerds allowed." And then <laughs> and I he how, broke that rule. Yeah, yeah I love <laughs> <laughs> and Je- Jesse's uh, Jesse's room has a "No chicks allowed" sign, so it's like it's the there's just shit littered all throughout here that was stacking up against them. Um, but I love that that whole that whole scene. I wrote down where where is it here? I'm trying to find um, the conversation in Grady's bedroom where uh, Jesse says something is trying to get inside my body, and then Grady responds with, "Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana, and you want to sleep with me?" Yeah. Like that that <laughs> yeah. whole scene just defines the entire movie. Yeah. And then I think uh, Mark Patton does such a good job of just looking deteriorated and like there's nothing left of him. And I think there's, after you see Scream Queen, I believe that there's a lot of truth in that. And I think because he wasn't an openly gay actor when he was filming this movie, he was trying to hide it. And it's impossible to hide that in this particular movie. And what are the odds that he'd find himself in this role where he's, you know, being told to dance around like because it came off of this was after the success of Risky Business. So they wanted him to do a dance scene for no fucking reason. And it's like that dance scene couldn't be more homoerotic. Like it's argue arguably, I think that the casting is maybe the most astute artistic decision in that it gave him the vehicle to exercise a little bit of that himself. You'll excuse the possession pun, um, because I mean, as somebody who hadn't really maybe publicly come come to terms with his sexuality yet, it it gave him something to a way of expressing that, and I think that that is in and of itself some of the most interesting stuff to watch in the film because i think he's going for it i think that i wouldn't go i'm not uh i wouldn't go so far as to say that i think that his performance is great across the board um because i don't think i don't i don't think that mark Patton's a great actor i think he has moments of brilliance that are rooted in a truth and i think that those are those are special moments i think there's moments that i i can really believe in in his performance which if you're saying like (laughs) <laughs> which is to say there's moments in this horror sequel thing 
that's not particularly well made, uh, not well written, etc. That are have something uh, palpably true about them, which is a special thing. I think that that's really interesting. And so that's something to watch for because you don't even get that in a fully realized picture sometimes. Like you don't, you have some good actors doing good work. This has a real person going through something that is captured occasionally. That's really interesting. And, and I think that there's something to be said for that, but I don't think he's like constantly brilliant. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I, yeah, I, I, and see, moments. I can agree with that. I th- what's that? Sorry, Kyle. I, I was just gonna say I agree. I think he has his moments for sure, and I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. Like his sincerity, I think, comes across during mm-hmm. those moments. But yeah, I think it's fairly spotty at times. I mean, you could definitely attribute that to like what he's working with for sure. But I guess maybe, maybe it's like just the backbone of the story. Like I'm not really, I don't know what to be invested in, and him, him as a character is kind of just one note whereas you know the first film they're kind of very developed he does develop over time absolutely uh jesse specifically but i don't know like i just didn't really have i didn't feel very invested in like what was happening and like even though even though they're these like kind of silly moments they're fun and they're like you know they are entertaining Mm -hmm. like there was really no you know sense of me sense of like narrative importance to really any of those things even if they are just like funny asides um at times they just felt out of place and sure maybe if i were to watch like a compilation of like just the best parts of this movie I, yeah maybe i would enjoy that but like as a totally structured piece it's just comes across as messy don't you don't get to call it a totally structured piece that makes <laughs> no. no sense let's get to the heart of this thing guys so why a possession what for what's freddy krueger's what's the win here for him Think about it. Yeah, there's yeah. there's nothing. Dead silence. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing. That makes no sense well, at all. Well, he can is... be a young boy and touch other young boys. Oh God. <laughs> He's oh, already, he can already do that in people's dreams. Can can he not? I don't, yeah, he can. I don't have an answer for you, Scott. But at the same time, I don't. I don't like immediately think it's a bad idea per se. Like I don't think that doesn't sound. Doesn't sound shitty to me off the get go. No, but it just, give it a reason. It's not really a Freddy story, though. Exactly. That's exactly it. Like, yeah. it, it, this should be like the sixth movie, or I don't know. This should not be yeah. the second one. Like, See, we, it could Sorry. I just think it could have been a different. If it wouldn't have been a Freddy movie, it could have been something really interesting and special. I still think it is, but like, it could have been regarded as something different if it if it didn't have Freddy Krueger in the center of it. You know. But yeah. it's it's also kind of muddy and. In it being a possession movie to begin with, where like you kind of, I like didn't even realize that there was a lot of possessioning happening because for a good portion of the film, I couldn't tell if it was just uh, Jesse, you know, just being paranoid with what's going on, or Freddie was actually there, or if he wasn't. Like, like you mentioned, the rules aren't really defined, and like things don't really make sense all the time. Like maybe if there were several different possessions taking place, maybe that would, maybe I don't know add some more importance to what's happening on happening on screen or I guess maybe if they went a little bit further with that idea it could work better but I mean yeah I can never tell you why that was a good idea because <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not adverse to it I'm not adverse to the possession idea uh, but there, there is no, which is like, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the, expl- you know, like trying to explain away things in horror movies is a stupid thing to do. I get yeah, that. Right, but, yeah. but, but in terms of like staying invested in it, um, I see no motivation. There's no win 
for for Freddy Krueger to be possessing somebody at this at this point in his career. Um, and, and if they had explained that, that would be one thing. Uh, like, I mean, for instance, like if he in this dream essence world, like if he fades away or something like that and he needs, you know, like like in child's play, it makes sense. Right. Like a possession thing makes sense. Yeah. And he wants to get out of this body. Yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. It, it makes sense. I understand that. That's all you need. Just make it make sense to me. But he he does this. I don't want to blow up like the rest of the 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 series too much for you. But like this isn't the last time we touch on a like oh well I'm doing this now. Oh what you are why like that doesn't make and like this this happens a couple times in the series where you're like he's doing that now. Okay, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it and and then when you try to explain that out loud, you go, "Yeah, I don't know why he's doing that. If he's already this like wild dream demon that can do whatever he wants, why does he want to do that? I don't know. Uh, does does is it ever? Is there ever any yeah. clear motivation for him to be out of his element where he is a god that gets to mess with people on uh like at their core? He starts in their core and exploits them." In a way that um, few dream uh, or that that few uh, <laughs> real world uh, pedophile child killers get to do in a way that I'm sure they'd love to, but he wants <laughs> to leave. He wants to leave the he wants to leave the funhouse and go back to the way it used to be. But it doesn't. There's no clear motivation when he's clearly enjoying himself so much. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. It just. I guess it just. I guess you're right. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be totally explained it just just it just feels half-baked i guess that's really yeah. what it comes down to yeah. like it's an okay idea i don't think it's not possible to be done what works so well about the original premise is that it's just a really simple premise you know mm -hmm. someone haunts your nightmares like you almost don't have to say anything more than that this it's well, like okay well he haunted your nightmares in the first time but now he's gonna possess you but he might haunt you one more time he might come to life and like i don't know it's just yeah he might you might crash your pool party. he might crash your pool yeah. party it's just it's pretty obvious that the main reason this was made was dollar signs. Like they they saw the success yeah. of the first one, they want to capitalize on it. So they the the idea is pretty half baked, like you said, and they they just rushed it out and everything, which is a shame. But it's also interesting to note that they were going to recast Robert England in this movie. They even like they had a, a stunt a couple, guy. There's a couple shots in there that are, yeah. are not him. Yeah, really. And wow. yeah, and it's a, because Robert England was already asking for more money. Like, so, and like, rightfully so. I think he, he, yeah, I think he is the heart of, like, obviously he's what makes the, the installments going forward work or not work. And, um, <clears throat> it just goes to show though, that you can't this, you know, when Boozy and I did our Halloween retrospective, we spent almost every single movie we talked about our, uh, we talked about the different incarnations of Michael and what different people brought to the role. This is always Robert England, yet he still switched it up so much in every movie. Like it, it changed, and I think it's still an interesting conversation to see how much the character changes in each movie as his ego gets bigger and bigger. Maybe well, I think he gives the best performance in this film, personally. Like I, I would say. Oh yeah, he's great. I, I think, and I think he looks good in this movie. I think I really like Freddy's makeup in this movie. I think it looks the awesome. Really, the design's really good, actually. Yeah, and it's very. I mean, it's very atypical. I mean, at the time you're making the second movie, so it's it's hard to. Yeah. But, uh, but retrospectively, um, there's a lot of uh, physicality about the makeup in this one that you don't see again moving forward. That is 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 something that's like that's one of the finer points of it. 
I, so, I mean, it's easy to harp on, and I've done a lot of that already. There's There are lots of things I do like about this movie. As already mentioned, there's some creepy scenes in the house, like him, his interactions with his sister when he's, like, kind of between states are really good. His communication with Freddy Krueger within his house, which, again, that's more of that world-building stuff that I think this movie is some of what it does best, like finding the diary um, and building on uh, building on the Freddy Krueger world, I think this this uh, this film does that really well, and that pays off moving forward as like this kind of sense of like conspiracy, bro- like kind of unfolds over the course of the series. And I don't think they knew what they were doing moving forward. They were just <laughs> they were they were just like going, okay, what are we going to reveal in this chapter? Yeah, and I think that that was some of what they like. I liked that. I thought that was creepy when they find her diary and are reading it out loud, and like knowing you're in the bedroom of a of a girl who went crazy, and that you can go walk over to your bedroom window and look across to where her boyfriend was murdered is like that's a that's creepy. I like that a lot. I yeah. think that, that like. I almost wish there was a little bit more of that, but that sense of, oh, that's one of the things I was going to mention. The best parts of this movie almost have a bit of a haunted house vibe to them because he's finding things out uh, about the place that he is trapped inside of to a degree. And some of that stuff, like, so they decided to go with the possession tact and this movie almost made me, left me wanting more of a haunted house sensation at points because I think that's where it was succeeding. Yeah. Um, and we never really get that from the series. And I think that that's something that I, I wish we could have maybe seen at some point. I really like that about this one. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get glimpses of that in Dream yeah. Warriors and everything. But yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, I don't know. I just think it's it's just such a bizarre movie, and especially that it's in such such the early stages of the franchise. It it just goes. To, I think one of the most interesting things, and this will be like one of my final thoughts about uh about Nightmare 2 is that this is one of the this is the movie where they really kind of opened up the scope to how ridiculous the shit could get and I'm talking about the dogs with faces on them like the the, when Freddy's comfortable too oh yeah totally (laughs) but it's not only that but it's like the just the whole the you know Freddy he becomes so we'll see the scale gets upped significantly in dream warriors so we're about to see a way bigger movie the next time around when we're back next week um but i think that a lot of that groundwork is laid into and it's it's shown that like you know freddie can do some more shit than just with his own body and he's Mm -hmm. he can affect the environment around him and not just not just with his own body and i really like that element of of freddie krueger and that's something that's explored later and uh, they don't really do that in the the original, so I think that that's something that you can accredit to part two. Uh, since you brought it up, do, do you care to explain to me, if you can, what happens at the end of part two? How how it's resolved? Like narratively, were you to tell somebody like, "Oh yeah, this happens." What? Oh is no, it? it's it's incredibly it's it, the, but that's the thing is that 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 happens in the the first one as well, where it's yeah. kind of like okay, so now. They 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 have a problem with endings, uh, in my opinion, with these movies, and that's that they just need to know that there's going to be a sequel. The, basically, what the, basically what they're telling you is that the finales of these movies mean fuck all. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard the final girl, final boy fights, and if they defeat them or not, Freddy's popping out at the end because bitch, you're getting a sequel. See, and that's and, exactly what happens. See, and I, I did that on purpose because the 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 one thing about this movie, and again, it's easier to kind of pick on it retroactively than anything else, is that um, 
you can explain a lot of that away, that happening in the series. You can explain a lot of that away by saying we're dealing with dream logic. You can kind of do that whenever you want in the series. It's kind of easy to do that. This took place in the real world, though, and so everything that happens at that weird mill is he crawls. <laughs> he crawls out of Freddy's actual body, his burnt to a crisp body. So exactly, like, yeah. Uh, none of what happens at the end makes any sense. I kind of, again, I kind of dig it. Uh, yeah. Like I, I think it's a lot of fun. I think this is the drunken cinema pick. This is yeah. the one. Like this would be yeah, a totally. blast. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, but in terms of like, I mean, it is a narrative disaster, which you don't see the likes of. You know, for another couple of years. Yeah, very true. The more I think about it, I think I actually, I think I liked Grady the most. Yeah. <laughs> what he asked. fun. What he goes. Remember your dreams, <laughs> only the wet ones. Yeah. <laughs> I like the scene where he's eating the entire yeah, time and he has a full that. mouth and he he, has, he doesn't know how to chew. He just yeah. wants to sit in there. He just wants the food to stay in his mouth while he speaks. Want to yeah. get <laughs> see a movie? I never chew. I push my grandma down the stairs. Like yeah. What? yeah. <laughs> like actually that was the that was kind of the breaking point for me because before that I was like okay like this is a different kind of camp like you know whatever let's roll with it but honestly when that started happening and then like the lizard tongue came out of him that's when I was like oh man I don't know I don't know <laughs> oh boy Kyle are you in for some fun over oh, the next yeah. month oh god you're in for a treat but uh all right do you guys have anything you want to add before we close up boozy do you have anything I think I'm good on it. Like, honestly, you guys covered a lot, and I just, I can't reiterate enough, if you haven't seen it, how much fun it is. I know that Kyle's opinion is a little bit different, but I'd say it's a fun movie. It has fun and moments. I thought the ending was kind of cool. I like that it called back to the start of the movie, and it, it's on par with how the first one ended, so I like that. Oh, you mean that ending? I, I'm when I think of the climax to this one, I think of the big, uh, the big factory or whatever. I always, for, I always kind of, I forget about the the school bus ending. The if I'm being yeah. honest. Yeah. No, but like, yeah, the ending with him crawling out of his body. Yeah. Oh god. Mm. Okay. So yeah, this was a ton of fun. Scott, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, just thanks for having me on again. I, I this is a blast, man. I, I I will talk about Nightmare on Elm Street as you have noticed. What are we into? Hour nineteen now. Yeah. I can talk about these movies forever. So this was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you thank, yeah, thanks so much for joining us again, Scott. And this won't be the last time. We'll find another time. Hopefully, we can uh, next time we do, we can all do it in person because it's more fun and more personal that way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with our retrospectives on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors, and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. See you guys next week.